Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Roll On, where after a mini globetrotting respite meets writer deadline schedule delaying clusterfuck, <laughs> the boys are finally <laughs> back in the lime green chairs. Me here and across from me over there once again, the vertical blue to my horizontal pinstripes, the chef to my chef. Sorry, I know I told that joke last time, but I had to hit hit that one again. If you know, you know, if you don't, I don't know what to tell you. Mr. Adam Skolnick to break down matters important and trivial. So today we're going to regale ourselves and probably nobody else with uh, an update on personal goings on. We're gonna recap some highlights from Leadville, the Bahamas, Rome, London, Manhattan, Mm. many global ports of call. We're gonna do a bit on wealth inequality. We're gonna perhaps share a few things we've been enjoying respectively. If we have time, we probably won't, we will see. Uh, Of course, answer a few listener slash viewer questions and much more. So before I toss it over to you, Adam, there were a lot of tweets and comments and DMs uh, because we were off our biweekly schedule without going deep on what biweekly means. <laughs> <laughs> People demanding their roll on, wanting to know if I was scouring the earth in my travels looking for Adam, who was hiding, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> demanding their Skolnick fix. Uh, so happy to be across from you today. And I wanted to kick it off by bequeathing you with your first fan letter, oh. fan mail that came here to the studio. Fan snail mail? Yes. More fan mail for Skolnick. From the St. George's School, building fine young men. Yeah. So one boy at a time. There you go. Well. Maybe open that later. We'll open that at a different time. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the reason for my pinstripe suit today is of course, because this is episode 700. You look great. 700, 700. episodes. And Amazing. I'm glad that I'm doing it with you. We can Thanks, celebrate man. together. You've been a, a big part of, how many have we done? At this point, how many roll-ons? I really don't know. I would say probably thirty or forty. You think that many? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not twenty-five. Yeah, maybe twenty-five. Somebody or so. out there count. And let we'll us figure know. it out. Yeah, I could probably look. Hmm. I have it somewhere <laughs> on the wall it? of my cell <laughs> where I live. Yeah, you're right, like, I scratch in it. Shock. <laughs> yeah, because I get out with your fingernail. I get out for this. You go, we put you back in your cell. Yeah, I can come out to work, and then right. I have to go back. But when you go back, you're just reading and studying and preparing for the next roll on. That's all like I do is I exclusive. Focus. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I go to sleep with one of those eye masks and mm-hmm. the eye masks have the shape of this microphone. <laughs> and that's all I see. See, I would prefer like some sort of Google glass contraption. Would you? Where you're reading all the time, developing material for the show. Interesting. And maybe some earbuds where you're listening to conversations <laughs> and podcasts. So you're just, consuming as much content as possible and synthesizing it during your REM cycle. You don't want a hype man, you want a cyborg. I want a repository of (laughs) wisdom and information. But instead you got me. Yeah, but you know. know. I find it funny that you were scouring the earth looking for me when I never leave now all of a sudden. All of a sudden I went from like never being in town. Somebody said the joke like, are you looking for Adam? Like, where is he? Is it like a where's Waldo (laughs) thing? I'm always in the same place. You're easy to track down. (laughs) I'm too easy to track down. And generally available. Like if I call or text, (laughs) you pretty much get back to me right away. You can't be too busy. 
<laughs> I, I, but, you know, I'm busy. You have other things. I got, I At got, some point, hopefully we can talk about the other things that you've been working on. Yes, we will, we will. I, you know, it is funny though, because it's been for so long, a lot of my work life was always out of town. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be so, like, I feel civilized. You're an adult. I know, but I don't necessarily like it. <laughs> yeah. We're planning on next year being a travel year. Uh, next year is the travel year. We're gonna do some trips. So, um, you know, we've done a few little jaunts, but we're gonna do some proper trips hopefully next year. That's yeah, the goal. you went to Mexico. Yeah, we did that. Mm-hmm. We did that. I mean, that's. But you're a lonely planet off the beaten path. Atlas Obscura kind of guy. You know what I'm doing now to fill that niche? I just finished watching the first season of Parts Unknown. <laughs> of Parts Unknown? Yeah. Going back. It's the only, because it's the only season available on living, HBO. Living vicariously. Yeah, I'm just what I'm doing. I, I wanna be up to the minute on things for you. So I watch news from the 2013. That's right. what I like to do. Well, Parts Unknown, does that sate your you know, wild hair desire to be exploring or does it make you feel more anxious about being at home? So I don't feel too anxious about it because there, you know, for every time there is a season or every season there's a time, whatever, it's the way it is. But- Something uh, about turning in yes, there too. But it definitely like whets my appetite for like to get out there and you know, Zuma loves to cruise. I mean, he loves traveling. We, when we went down to North County, San Diego, just for five days, he was like, happy to cruise, like anywhere we go, whether it's Marina Del Rey, La Paz, whatever, he is just always ready to like walk around and walk ahead and look around. And he's now just recently gotten more social, but for a long time, and even still has it, he has this thing that I call 50 shades of adios. Hmm. And that is when people come up to him. This is like a new book. He's a cute kid, right? I mean, come on. I mean, listen, Yeah, I know I don't put him on social media, (laughs) just trust me. It's not me as a parent saying it. It's a, he's he's objectively. Of course, a cute it's kid. not you as a parent saying it. Yeah, it's he's objective, completely objective. It's an objective thing, um, and so sometimes people come up to him and they want to lean down. Oh, hi, hi, and he'll say adios because he's bilingual. Mm-hmm. Adios. That's what he says, and they think a lot of times they think it's cute. They think, oh, he's so cute because when a cute kid speaking Spanish, they think it's very cute. I take him to the bakery. I say, what do you want today at the bakery? It's always croissant, by the way. Kid loves croissants. The guy comes over. Yeah, what can I get you? Adios. That's what he says to the guy. (laughs) And but sometimes, like you call, we talked last night. He said hola to you, and then when it was time to say goodbye, he says adios in a nice way. So sometimes adios means goodbye. Sometimes it means. Take a hike, pal. Like fuck off. Yeah, take yeah. a hike. Well, what I hear in that is, yeah, on the one hand, it's sort of the the infant's version of "I bid you good day, sir." Yes. Right. Yes. Like get away from me. Yeah. Um, but also, there is a flexing of healthy boundaries. Yeah. Right. He's <laughs> like, I don't need you in my space right now. Right. Yeah. He's good like for him. And sometimes it's not like it's kind of a, a nicer adios, like adios, and he just turns and bails. So mm-hmm. it's not always you have to leave. But it's I feel like it's in the inflection. It's kind of how Camiolo, when we hear noise in the mm. next room, you know, not, I've heard him do it. He goes outside and he's like, hey, pal, adios. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard him do it. A little New York energy. Yeah. But uh, like yeah, that. so that's happening. Uh, went to the Red Hot Chili Peppers nice. at SoFi mm. in late July. You've been gone a lot. We haven't been, so I haven't been able to tell you. Um, did you watch that untitled documentary that April found? I didn't. I, I've been meaning to watch it. Uh, I love the lore of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. And I've actually been thinking about them a fair amount because 
I spent a little bit of time with Rick Rubin recently. Oh, and we did a podcast excellent. that will be coming out, not for a while, not until the new year. Um, and of course he's worked with them extensively, oh, including yeah. on, on the latest album. Um, but I know you're a mega fan, right? Well, was I wasn't that? always, April is, but uh-huh. I wasn't always, but because the problem with me when I was a young snot is that if you were popular, I automatically didn't really want anything to do with you. You know, mm-hmm. like as a band or a film or whatever. I was that kind of an obnoxious guy. But I always enjoyed the music. It's fun music, party music, but I didn't realize how much I actually probably aligned with them because I didn't pay attention too much to who like Anthony and Flea were mm-hmm. and all that. And obviously I think of Californication as their best album. That's my personal opinion. It's my favorite. Yeah, and it's, it's they're 37, I think, when they're recording that record and touring around with it. So it's like, in some ways, it's like they've gotten to this kind of, place of greater wisdom and, and still creatively just incredible and, and a lot of energy. And so I know all that retroactively because I've just been enjoying the music more recently since I've been with April, but April's like obsessed with them, knows everybody. Like I didn't mm. know the whole thing about John Fushianti or Fushante. Any, Yeah, Fushante. I didn't right. know about his whole ordeal it's and what he went through. That guy's like, a genius though. A genius. And like, just the fact that, so now that I'm looking back and kind of a late, like a late blooming super fan, which I, which I yeah. guess I am, April found this great YouTube documentary that was, I think, unreleased. And it's all about, touring behind the Californication record. There's a, a documentary people may have seen called Funky Monks, which is about Blood Sugar Sex Magic recording that record. And that's mm-hmm. really good. But this other one is like another level. Like they have Chris Rock comes in, Woody Harrelson makes a cameo, Julia Butterfly Hill, who was in the top of the tree, she's in it. They bring in like Buddhist teachers, they bring in all sorts of people and they talk to them in basically the green room backstage. And they have, I mean, it's a phenomenal, piece of verite and I love it. It's so weird and quirky and you get to know who these guys are a little bit more. And uh, and so I, I recommend it. Well, you should put, we'll put yeah, the link up. Put the link, we'll put the link in the show notes and yeah. I'll make a mental note to watch that. Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, whatever you think of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, clearly they're, you know, one of Los Angeles's greatest rock bands of all time. Like they are yeah. Los Angeles. I right? think they are. I think they are the greatest band in the history of LA. Cause I, the, doors the Doors would be up there. So you'd have The Doors, but the Chili Peppers really personify LA in a way the that The Doors do Los not. Angeles, yes, right. Yeah, like yeah, it yeah, is yeah. impossible to drive down Melrose and past Fairfax High School without thinking about those right. guys. Cause they all met there when they were like 14. Right. And have been together. Well, the two ever guys since. did. And, well, then, was, and then the other, the first Flea guitarist, and Ant- right? Flea and Anthony met there. Yeah. And right? their, their other guitarist, I yeah. think the original guitarist. Yeah. I met Chad, spent a little bit of time. Yeah. With and Chad. Chad I, we were both at, a, at like a, an event at the Nantucket Project a couple of years ago. Anthony's sober. Like, I think, Ant- and he's Point Doom, I'm pretty sure, or somewhere. Yeah. In I know he's. He's local. There. He should I've never, be here. I've never met him. I, he's I don't know. Him. This, Flea's it, the guy I want in the seat. You want? He's got it yeah. both, man. His his memoir is incredible. I have Flea? it like right over there. I, yeah, I'm yeah. reading it right now. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I love it. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so strange you know. and weird and quirky and funny. I know. Yeah, it's great. Um, and the Hillel thing when Hillel passed, and then John yeah. Frusciante became the guitarist, and then he had his problems and was gone. Yeah. And in his absence, I felt like the band never really could find its groove, you no. know, and having him back in the band is like a pretty cool thing. I'll share one Red Hot Chili Peppers story. Yeah. So they played at Stanford, it must've been 1986. I remember going to, uh, going to a concert. It was outdoors at the outdoor amphitheater there. 
And this was during the like freaky styly days. Okay. Like, when they really were just like this party band, like starting out and the concert was in the middle of the day and there couldn't have been more than like maybe 200 people there. Like it wasn't a heavily attended thing. It wasn't like a must see situation. And it was in the era when they would play with the sock, you know, basically naked with the socks on. <laughs> yes. You know, and they're up there doing that. Yes. And I just remember Hank Wise, my friend Hank Wise, who I swam with at Stanford, who is the guy who left the voicemail. Yes. We, we talked about it. He has the record for fastest Catalina channel swim. Right. He's probably uh, 52 now Amazing. or something like that. Um, he's just a character and like a beautiful- We gotta go gig. swim. I love, I love Hank, yeah. we gotta go swim with him. But Hank is an extreme extrovert and Hank just got up on stage and put the sock on and like danced and did the whole thing. Like, I'll never forget that. It was unbelievable. Um, but I would have not have thought at that time that they would become this like super band. It's funny, I have a story like that with Fish in 1991 in Vermont at like some gym, you know, like community college gym, I forget what it was, but yeah, and you just never guess they'd, be, they'd take the world by storm. Mm. But you know, the, sh the show was phenomenal, really great, but it wasn't cheap. And I will say like back in the day, you could go to a concert and you just buy the ticket face value. And if you called early enough, you'd be like right in the front row for like 15, 20 bucks. And now like, there are hundreds of dollars right. for a seat to get anywhere yeah. in that stadium. But that's, I guess, the economy of things. I mean, it, it does play into what we're gonna talk about later. Like, I love to see these bands, you know, getting paid and doing their thing. Mm -hmm. um, very, very expensive now to just go to a concert. Back then, yeah. it was normal to go right. to concerts. Yeah, you go to concerts all the time. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a situation that would break your bank to no. go see a show. No, Yeah. So, so that gets into the wealth inequality stuff we're gonna talk yeah. about a little bit later. But uh, yeah, so that was great. And, and SoFi is a beautiful place. Uh, however, it's kind of like Orwellian, like you know how in Dodger Stadium, no matter where you are, you know how to get to where you need to go because mm -hmm. there's signs everywhere and you can figure out the system. And SoFi, no matter where you are, you have no idea where you are. I haven't been there yet. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting- uh, Is that intentional? I don't know, it's like a tech campus that like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you go in. <laughs> But it was a great show. Um, you guys should see the tour. I'm hoping they come back through in the back end promoting the new album. They've just released like two albums in six mm -hmm. months. So, mm -hmm. yeah. How's the fitness? Fitness is good. You know, I think I ticked it up a little bit. I've been doing like 25 miles of running and three to four miles of swimming every week. And so that kind of has, I think I've even lost a few pounds and feeling a little bit, I'm not fast, but I'm faster. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Man. A little bit. You know, From dad bod to father figure. <laughs> That's, I thought that's your secret, your yeah. next book. <laughs> that's pretty good. I can't take credit for that. I saw that on social media somewhere. Oh, okay. Like somebody, like it was a t-shirt or something like that, but I thought that was pretty great. It's okay. Yeah. Great writer. Speaking steal. of which, uh, yeah. we got to shout out our boy, Dan Drake. Oh yeah. Creative director here at the RRP. He just celebrated his one year anniversary of working here. Uh, he moved his entire family from St. Louis to participate in this show. He's been an incredible value add to the team and over the course of the past year has lost 40 pounds. It's amazing. 40 pounds without really even trying by his words. Like he just went plant-based yeah. because he was in this environment and the 40 pounds slowly melted away. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's pretty incredible. It, so it, that's what happens when you embrace this thing that we're doing. That's what here. happens when you come here. Dad bod cannot exist in this environment. No, it from melts. dad bod 
to, to father fa another dad from dad to yeah. father figure. Rich, let's cut the bullshit. How the hell are you? Well, Adam, in honor of this week's podcast guest, Susan Cain, okay. the queen of quiet, the champion of introverts and all things melancholic. Mm. I am here today to channel my inner introvert into a short burst of extroversion just for you. <laughs> yes. Is that like- You a, know Susan Cain? No. She's great. Yeah. So you're not up, you, you didn't listen to that podcast that we just dropped this morning already? Come on, man. Oh, the what one this morning member? from this morning. Yes. Yeah. You had a couple hours That's to listen a great to one. on your way over here. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> I love that one. Anyway. Um, yeah, you know, I've been spending most of my time, Adam, unsubscribing from email <laughs> newsletters. Is, is, that a, is that a warning shot to not launch a newsletter? Here's the thing. Like I realize that somewhere on the internet, you can find my email address, like it's not that hard. Right. And so I receive like 200 emails a day, 95 to 98% of which are newsletters that I did not subscribe to. Oh, wow. Somehow I just get added to right. this. And so I'm in this war of attrition with, it's not necessarily spam because it's not like, you know, somebody trying to scam me out of my money or anything like that. Just like newsletters I didn't subscribe to. So literally I spend like, I'm committed now to mm. see how many I can unsubscribe from, but I unsubscribe from like anywhere from five to 20 every single day. And it doesn't seem to make a difference because the next day there's it's a whole new zombie onslaught of newsletters yeah. that I have to unsubscribe. But there's something weirdly satisfying about just methodically unsubscribing every single day. The hidden so that's battle. my obsessive compulsive uh, outlet. The hidden right battles now. we all fight. Yeah. You should revoke their newsletter licenses. Um, Can you do that? Well, I'm always, then I feel guilty. Cause then, you know, like when you unsubscribe, right. sometimes it says, why are you unsubscribing? And right. you have a choice of like, you know, I usually just say, I never, I never signed up for this, but you always have the option to, you know, report them. Right. And then I'm like, should I report them? I don't know. No. Like they're just out there getting their hustle on. Yeah, it's okay. Show great concern and I'm do nothing. I'm not gonna report them. Just unsubscribe, yeah. vote with your subscription. <laughs> quietly, quietly unsubscribe. <laughs> the challenge becomes when you're getting a newsletter from somebody who's a friend. Yes. Um, who's got a product right. or something like, and then you're like, should I unsubscribe? Like, I get it, I'm a fan, I like it, but I don't need to get an email every two or three days about this. But then are they gonna know that Listen, I unsubscribed? Is this gonna they'll know. be- they you will know, know. Create a, create they will a complexity know. in my I, relationship. I, I once had a little thing back when I was a single man with a woman and uh, it didn't work out. And I kind of unfollowed, you know, as you do, but this person did not unfollow. And she had a great business that I was a fan of and I got the newsletter, but I didn't like being reminded because it didn't work out in my favor in that particular time. It was worked out for my favor now, mm -hmm. but at the time I was uh, probably a little bit hurt. And so I was like, you know, I don't want this person's email, but I thought I didn't want her to see that. I didn't know much about email subscriptions and I didn't want to hurt her feelings. Yeah. <laughs> And so I unsubscribed. And then the next thing you know, like I'm down like a couple, like the business unfollowed me. <laughs> she unfollowed me. So they know. Yeah. They know. You got weaponized. <laughs> yeah. Um, meanwhile, subscribe to our newsletter, of course. Yes. 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 If you want to be up to speed on all of our yes. uh, podcasts that we're releasing. And know. you know what? If it's not providing value for you, you can unsubscribe. Yeah. I don't free. check that. I won't even know. It's no, fine. you definitely won't know. No.
And I can't be unsubscribing from all these newsletters and then be mad if someone unsubscribes. Bro, you're, you're, you're bigger than that. You're yeah. not perusing the subscription yeah. list. Um, anyway, one of the reasons that we haven't done this in a bit is I was overseas. Um, I had a speaking event in Europe, which was mm. really cool. And cool. then uh, spent a little bit of time in London, which was great. Um, stayed at my buddy Sasha's flat right on Portobello Road, which oh, was killer. Like amazing, like right in the thick of it. The right. weather was like perfect. Over a Notting Hill. Yeah, yes. exactly. Like right, if you've seen that movie, like literally right in the middle of like where that whole thing took place. Yes. 30 years ago, whenever yes. that movie came out. Um, and just got to enjoy myself, see some friends. Uh, I did a couple podcasts. I hooked up with John McAvoy for round two, which is amazing. And uh, Tony Riddle, the barefoot ultra running oh, cool. phenomenon known as the natural lifestylist. That was great. Those are old school audio only podcasts um, as is the one I did with, uh, with Rick Rubin. So you have those to look forward to. Old school style, no video, no nothing, you know, all the noise from the street and everything else that happens when you kind of tr- you know, do the traveling salesman bringing it, bringing the kit with you. But it was great to see them and just be a tourist and and, and enjoy London. And I just yeah. want to thank everybody who like stopped me and said said hello. Lots of uh, podcast fans out there. Lots of Skolnick fans. Really passing on there. Passing. Did you hit Autolangi? Does Autolangi have enough vegan options? Did you go? No, no, I had most of my meals at a place called Pharmacy. Oh, cool! Which is a really beautiful, amazing plant-based restaurant. Pharmacy with an F. Uh, pharmacy with an F. Okay. Yes, of course. Um, that's like farm to table. The owners, Camilla Fayed, who was out of town, I was hoping to meet her is the owner and has like apparently her own farm where they basically grow everything that they serve in the restaurant Amazing. and all that kind of stuff. Uh, also happens to be the half sister of Dodi Fayed. Oh really? Which is interesting. So there's a little, you know, kind of like right. um, UK pedigree built right. into the whole thing. And they have this whole movement around healthy eating and regenerative farming and all that kind of stuff. So oh. that was like my spot. Um, and as I mentioned, I stayed at my buddy Sasha's flat, uh, longtime listeners of the podcast will remember a podcast that I did with Sasha, Sasha Gervasi and uh, Jamie Dornan, the movie star. We did that, that was episode 398. It was a while ago. And that conversation was around a movie that, that Sasha wrote and directed called My Dinner with Hervé that starred Peter Dinklage that was on HBO. Mm-hmm. Sasha's a screenwriter and a director. And the flat that I was staying in is really like his office, not his home, but he was out of town and I was able to stay there, which was fantastic. And the reason I bring that up is that I have a podcast with Sasha coming up that's going to release uh, on the 26th of September. And it's around a documentary that Sasha made called Anvil, the story of Anvil. Did you ever see this documentary? No, but I saw the I saw your Twitter thread about, yeah. about it. So all. this is what's cool. So Anvil is the story of this heavy metal band that was on the precipice of a breaking big and then never really made it, but influenced all of these huge bands that became wildly successful. Okay. And yet they never gave up on their dream and Sasha kind of caught up with them in their late forties and they were still rocking out and making albums every year, whatever, yeah. Yeah. but just playing pubs and working you know, blue collar jobs to pay the bills. And he made this beautiful documentary about their pursuit and their refusal to give up on their dream. And it's an indie doc um, that he self-financed uh, that ended up becoming one of, it's considered one of the great rock documentaries of okay. all time. It's a real life 
Spinal Tap. And it's right. really beautifully rendered. And it came out 13 years ago. I did a thread about it on Twitter, um, which you can see if you're watching here, I'll, I'll link it up in the show notes, but it's really a thread about what it means to pursue like an audacious dream and, and never give up. And it's the story, it's kind of the parallel story of this band Anvil and Sasha's career as a writer and director. Um, like I said, he self-financed this documentary 13, he was making it like 15 years ago. He premiered it at Sundance to great you know, reception and applause, but no buyers hmm. wanted to distribute it. And I think he might've had one deal on the table that wasn't so great. And he was like, fuck it, I'm going to basically release it myself, which you know, in film parlance means you're kind of DOA. Like if a distributor right. isn't gonna put it in theaters, now it's different with streaming. This is before streaming. Um, it was considered like a lunatic move. Like you're gonna right. pay to put it in the theaters. Right. Like, you know, if you do that, maybe you window it for like, you know, a couple screenings, right. but it's too expensive. And he was able to, you know, kind of bankroll a little bit of a release and the movie went on to great acclaim. Like, so by taking that risk, it really established his career as a filmmaker. And the film Anvil, because it was successful, gave this band the career that they had always sought. So they kind of both succeeded as a result mm. of this. Uh, but it was a, still a small movie. I mean, people, it, it's sort of unanimously beloved, but it kind of came and went. Right, it wasn't like searching for Sugar Men or right. anything like but that. But it sort of prefaced all of those right. movies, like before Amy, yep. you know, before Sugar Men, yep. like there was Anvil. Yep. And all like the rock and roll community loves it. Like there's tons of bands. Sasha has a million stories of bands that just play it on loop in their tour buses and mm -hmm. you know, they just they just love the movie. Mm -hmm. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that during the course of COVID, during lockdown, for some reason, somehow Gen Z and millennials unearthed this movie and discovered it and started just passing it along to their friends. Really? And it became like a thing, yes. like Anvil became a thing. It was discovered by this younger generation. And that kind of outpouring of love and support for the movie suddenly like made it relevant again. And this distributor called Utopia has stepped in and they're now re-releasing Anvil this fall in theaters across the country and overseas. Like that never Amazing. ever happens. No. Like an indie movie from a decade and a half ago is getting re-released in movie theaters when barely any movies end up in the movie theater anymore. It's a really cool story. Very cool. Um, so not only is Sasha one of my best friends who opened up his home to me when I was in London, um, I'm trying to help him celebrate the release of this movie, um, which is coming out September 26th, I think, as I said. Uh, yeah, the week of the 26th. And that's when this podcast with Sasha and Lips and Rob from the movie is going to release. So I have two band members, the two main guys from the band and Sasha. So, Fantastic. And it's just a, you know, it's insanity with All right. these guys. So you have that to look I forward to. I can't wait to. to anyway, to, and to thank listen. you, Sasha, for letting me stay. Do they play? Do they day. play a number? No, but they're oddly, particularly Lips, you know, he's now like an aging Toronto dwelling, uh, heavy metal head banging rocker who still wears exactly what he wore when he was 22 years old. You of know? course, of course. With like his own band t-shirt and he's got the fanny pack and like the whole and the hair and the whole thing. But he's so charming and endearing. And he's sort of this, he's the self-help guru you didn't need you, you knew. Like yeah. he's got all this kind of like 
crazy wisdom. Some so it's really fun. Some identities will never perish. <laughs> yeah, that's right, right. So that's that. Uh, a couple quick things. I was in a Porsche commercial. I saw that. Yeah, which was cool. Um, where's that? Check I that out. It up right there. Like, Listener I don't know viewers. if we could play this on YouTube without getting into trouble, but I show up like a minute into it. Does that mean you're going to be driving an e Porsche? I would like to be driving an e Porsche. I am not driving an e Porsche. <laughs> Um, they didn't sweeten it's the just, sweeten It's literally the just a photograph. E it's like it shows up. That photograph know, deserves this, an like, e-Porsche. Uh, that photograph was taken by David Zamet. Thank you, oh. David. Uh, anyway. Look at you um, out there with Hawking and. Yeah, man, good company. Yeah, bro. I don't know who that chess genius um, is. And I wanted to thank everybody for the, the outpouring of love around the Mike Fremont episode. Mm. Um, the centenarian slash. Amazing. Uh, multiple masters, world record holder in in, in all kinds of uh, running affairs. Like I feel like the world fell in love with that guy. Like it's just a beautiful thing to see um, so many people excited to hear from somebody who is a hundred years old. Yeah. And, and like I said, in the intro to that episode, like I don't think we do a very good job in Western society of celebrating our elders and respecting the wisdom that they have to share. And I feel like, that podcast did, it was like my small part in trying to rectify that. And it was just cool that people really cottoned on to him and loved what he had to share. And, you know, he's, it's hard not to love him. You know, it's great. It's what makes your podcast what it is, you know, like that you find these amazing people and put them on here and like get to hear from them. And sometimes they have a following, but sometimes they're just really interesting human beings that have a lot to say and, and, and share. Yeah. Um, do you think the reason that we don't treat elders as well is because when we were like six and seven, our grandparents bored us with really boring stories of the old days that are actually not boring, but, but we thought they were but, boring. But and then we hold it that, against the elders. Do you think elders? that our generation was unique in that? Like no. that's <laughs> historically probably always been the case, right? But you know, in, in earlier days, like we kept our elders close, like that's we true. lived in a village and right. they were always there and they helped with raising the kids yeah, and there right. was an intimacy to that relationship that is now more rare than common. You're saying they weren't chucked into the nursing home. Exactly. Yeah. It's fucked up what we do here. Yeah. So, it's, it seems off. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, do you wish you lived in a village? Yeah. You I do? mean, when you think like, when I think back, like some of my happiest kind of living circumstances were communal, like being in right. a dorm in college or living in a house in college with a whole bunch of friends. Like, I don't know that I would wanna do that now, but there's something about like being part of a, a group, you know, in mm -hmm. a living situation that holds a lot of appeal. A crew. And I think it's deeply embedded in our, in our DNA. Mm. And now we define success as cloistering ourselves in a, in a large home at the end of a cul-de-sac and separating ourselves from each other. That's exactly how I define yeah, success. Right? <laughs> That's how you're living. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a cloistered know? man. Yes. Um, I well, agree you. Well, you should tune into the Susan Cain episode. I'm going to. Learn about your introversion, Adam. <laughs> Um, I would call you an, an introvert who can be periodically extroverted. You know, I used to be thought of as just pure extrovert, but I think I've always been an extrovert with like this deep vein of introversion. Mm, yeah, um, maybe it's the converse of, of me, yeah. like more extrovert, but you can't be a writer or be in love with writing without having a serious streak of introversion. This career has completely warped my personality. I was a, I had a really winning bright, happy personality before, and now I'm a cranky old fucker. That happens, <laughs> I share that. Uh, can I just ask one thing before we get yeah. the break? 
because we this is something different. It's not even on our run of show. But I feel like we should talk about Salman Rushdie and just just two before minutes. Before we of do thoughts. that, okay. Yeah. Before we do that, yeah. there was on the Mike Fremont thing because oh, yeah. I want to close that out. Yeah. There was a a reel, a video that I put up where I believe I like asked him what he ate, and he kind of said, uh, "I eat, you know, like a, a whole food, plant based diet." And right. there were a lot of comments like, "Tell us what you actually eat, right?" And in the longer podcast, he goes into some detail, but he only gave like one or two examples. So I think he had self-awareness around not fully answering that question. And he sent me an email saying, here's a full like picture of what I eat. And so I copied that email and I created a Google doc out of it that gives you know a pretty robust <laughs> rundown of like Amazing. the Mike Fremont diet. So I'll link that up in the show notes. I'm not gonna read it, but it's like two pages long of like various meals that he enjoys. So if you wanna get on board on the Mike Fremont diet, hit that link. And be like again, Mike. We'll find you there and be, yeah, be like Mike. Be like Mike. Right? Mikey, he likes it. <laughs> Mikey likes it. All right, Salman. Yeah, Salman Rushdie, obviously the tragedy happened. He was attacked, uh, yeah. fatwas apparently never go away. And uh, he was attacked by a crazy person driven by, you know, I guess- uh, Extremist extremist, ideas. Uh, extremist, but extremist religious ideas. And he survived. Mm-hmm. So there was a moment there where it looked pretty dire, like he wasn't going to survive. Right. So the person who did that failed, let's put that out there failed at the job, which is great, uh, but also because he's so strong. Mm. But anyway, uh, I just thought you, you know, being an intellectual like yourself, you might have some thoughts on yeah. Salman. And, I mean, and it's, it's interesting. It's been 30 years of fatwa yeah. on him, right? And it took that long for this to catch up to him. But that fatwa, you know, in the minds of someone who inhabits that level of religious zealotry has never wavered, right? Mm. And so finally, it occurred and it's shocking, but also we shouldn't be surprised. Like this is the modus operandi of, uh, you know, a certain way of seeing the world that is, you know, antithetical to our, you know, liberal democratic, you know, perspective. So it's shocking, you know, it's shocking. It's also something that I think all writers or people who are participating in public discourse need to take note of, especially as the world, you know, seems at least from my perspective to be descending into a certain level of dissonance and chaos that mm-hmm. I don't remember, you know, in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, and it's disturbing. Yeah. The, the zealotry that is going on, you know, obviously when it comes to this kind of thing, it's, it's real life and death stuff, but then there's also the zealotry of controlling women's bodies. And then we also have this increasing zealotry of political ideology, Mm -hmm. which is not the same, but it's still there. And so liberalism is about being able to express everything, right? And so we have to check ourselves against this zealotry and the beliefs we hold so strongly. And we can't let these beliefs necessarily define our worldview because when you do and you become more and more myopic, then you just go into this funnel that can lead to a pretty dark place. So yeah, yeah. Well, those funnels seem to be tightening. They do these days, and there's more of them. Yeah, yeah. But good for you know Salman Rushdie for. I mean, he survived it, man. Yeah. What a bull! And so wish him well. Yeah, wishing him well. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with more from Mr. Adam Skolnick and myself. 
We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. 
Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. You know, we were just talking in the break, but uh, Salman Rushdie's attack was not the first time, right? The Japanese translator of Satanic Verses was killed. The Italian translator was attacked and survived. The Norwegian publisher was attacked, shot three times, I believe, survived. I think seven, eight, nine people died in protests around Satanic Verses. So when you see all of that, you gotta wonder like, you know, obviously you can't hold the writer responsible, that's crazy. But like, you do wonder like, how does that weigh? Like, what do you think about that? Like writing something that leads to so much of that, mm. it's, I can't even imagine what that feels like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's quite treacherous. Yeah. And I feel like the threat level, like, you know, has reached a different DEFCON than in past years. Like everything just feels very heightened. And, you know, there is fear around, can I say this? What will happen if right. I say this? And it's a weird horseshoe politics thing because I think that applies on both sides of the political 100%. spectrum. Um, obviously, you know, the left historically being the champions of free speech and now the left, you know, being in favor of certain curtailing of free speech oh, yeah. and the right, you know, shouting for broader free speech right. protections. It's just a very except strange when it comes to time. Except when it comes to what you teach kids in schools. Right, then uh, yeah, right. bring it all in, right? right? right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, right. you know, when the search warrant was, uh, was executed right. on Mar-a-Lago, it's like, Ban the FBI, except, yeah, defund when it, the FBI. except when it comes to trans issues, like sick the FBI on them. Right. You know, it's, it's, uh, I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's issue specific. When those agents showed up at Mar-a-Lago and ruined our perfect morning out on the links, it was, <laughs> it was treacherous, man. I can't imagine like how they would go into such a, I mean, it was such a perfect day at Mar-a-Lago until that moment. You know? Right, I, I, I know. Yeah. And listen, Adam, what? I know there's great temptation <laughs> to go down the Mar-a-Lago Donald Trump oh, right. or Alex Jones trial rabbit hole. There's a lot of delicious schadenfreude to be you know, Listen, enjoyed it, with all of that. Yeah. But let me tell you something. I heard something from a writer you might've heard of called Yuval Noah Harari. Oh yes. Yes, I heard him speak and he said something that really has stuck with me. And I actually have been thinking about it every single day. He said, don't be a profiteer in the culture war. Yeah. In other words, like don't be a content creator who is trying to monetize strife. Right. Or be a participant in, you know, this this kind of ongoing battle for hearts and minds. I think there's a distinction here because obviously if you have a platform and you feel strongly about using that platform to speak your truth, you should do that, but that's different from knowing how to activate people or antagonize them and doing it from uh, you know from a motivation place of profiting you know yeah I agree with him and I respect that however it sounds like he's never brunched with Alex Jones over at Mar-a-Lago and that is a <laughs> wonderful experience <laughs> yeah, let me yeah. tell you talk about a brunch do you think that that brunch would exceed the experience of sitting down for brunch <laughs> with Alex Jones and enjoying however many Bloody Marys he might <laughs> enjoy? <laughs> Um, 
You know, but I wasn't. We're not going to go there. I wasn't a guest. We're not going I just there. want to say I wasn't this a guest. This is endurance corner. I wasn't Adam. a guest at Mar-a-Lago. I was just there to scoop ice cream. Sometimes you take <laughs> right. out of town jobs in this yeah. business. That guy <laughs> opened up an ice cream place in Manhattan. Did he? Yeah, it's called Ketchin. I forget what it's called. Uh, what's the guy's name again? He's friends with the Joanne yeah. Molinaro, the Korean yeah. vegan. She went there for the opening. So it's nice that he took his ice cream fame on TikTok and translated it into a storefront. Brick and mortar? Yeah, brick yeah. and mortar, go in reverse. Let's get him on the pod. He would be good actually. I know he listens. Um, now I feel bad that I don't remember his name. I'm with you in the uh, don't fetch the low hanging fruit of the culture wars. Yeah. Nobody needs us Come to on, do that. Man. No, no. I, I, I really don't wanna be a muckraker in that arena. No, but can we joke about it though? Yeah, of course, okay. we always can. All right. But we're here today, Adam, yeah. to talk obscure endurance sports. <laughs> That's what we live for here. <laughs> I know, right? This is the sports news you didn't I, need. I feel like, yeah, we're not participating in the culture war, but what no. we are doing is forcing down people's throats, a lot of people's throats, yeah. tiny sports that most people don't care yeah. about. Yeah, this is the sports cast you never wanted. Right. Ready, let's right. start. Rich, okay. throw it over to you. Uh, well, we're gonna start with <laughs> one of the larger sports. We're gonna start with swimming, a uh. sport close to my heart, mm. Adam. Yeah. Because a young man from Romania yeah. called David Popovich at all of 17 years old, broke the world record in the Hunter Freestyle. Going 46-86 at the European Championships. Crazy. He's the youngest 100 meter freestyle world record holder. There's lots of videos on the internet of you know this race. If you're on swimming Twitter, which I am. Yeah. Of course, everybody is. I, right? I follow that guy that you love uh, so much. You know, like his underwater form mm. is like the, the most beautiful, unbelievable thing ever. I just pulled up a video right. of him like swimming. It's like, Look at that. it's just perfect form. But yeah. to be 17 years old and break that world record, cause if you're, this is the thing. And I talked about this with Malcolm Gladwell. Like if you're that young, how many years of hardcore training do you have under your belt? Right. Not very many, No. right? No. So how is he going so much faster than anyone ever has before at such a young age? What do you think the answer is? I think it's like, the advance of the human species. Like this okay. is how world records go, right? Like yeah. obviously there's advances in training and nutrition and recovery and the like that right. inform all of this. But, you know, it's just cool that when you think a world record will never get broken or there's some ceiling or bar that would prevent, you know, a human from ever doing a certain thing and then they do it we're all kind of uplifted. And a good looking result. kid too. Super good looking kid, obviously, you know, a huge bright new star yeah. in swimming. And, and we need that. This kid does. I mean, like, is it, cause after, I mean, we have Dressel and we have Katie. Right, but yeah. Dressel's, you know, in the twilight right. of his swimming career. And he just did something in a 25 meter pool at like the NCAAs or something. And he broke some um, hallowed record. Was that the 200 or I the 150? I can't remember, I mean, he's broken so many records. Yeah. What's really cool is they just did this thing called duel in the pool that they do. I don't know how, what the, how often they host it, but it's a duel meet between Australia and the United mm -hmm. States and they do all these wacky events right? and they fire off like flame plumes and they try to make it into like a spectacle. Mm. And they did this uh, like a 200 IM event, but you got to choose the order of strokes. Oh really? <laughs> so like they dive in and one guy's swimming backstroke and one guy's swimming freestyle, and one guy's swimming butterfly. So they separate dramatically over the course of 200 meters. And then, you know, the guy who's like finishing with breaststroke against the guy who's finishing with freestyle, who's 
15 meters behind him, like, is he gonna catch him? You know, it's, what it's would your cool. What would your order be, I mean, that, that also goes to the Malcolm Gladwell thing of like, how do you make these more obscure sports more interesting right. to a mainstream audience? And I think being creative and like letting go of tradition a little bit and, you know, experimenting with some of that stuff is fun and cool. Would you do the different order? Would you, it's usually backstroke first, right? It's usually- no, it's fly, it's back, fly breast back. free. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they do like really short races and, you know, right. you know, just stuff that's like fun. Um, we could talk about that more, but that's all. We have too many other things. Let's to keep talk going. About. I mean, Popovich also set the world junior record in the 200 freestyle with the fastest textile swim in history. It was the third fastest uh, or fourth fastest performance of all time, third fastest performer of all time. So clearly a star in the making. Yeah. But this concludes swimming news for roll on episode 700. Yeah, let's move over to Death Valley. Yeah. Death Back Valley. to you, Rich. Well, we do have a little bit of a, an update on the Badwater situation that yeah. we talked about yes. last time. Yes. There was some controversy over the women's victor, Ashley Paulson. Mm -hmm. There were some people who were skeptical that um, she actually won the race or there might've been some shenanigans. If you wanna hear us discuss that, go back and listen to that. But I thought it would be the responsible thing to kind of update everybody on, on what's transpired uh, there. The initial post by Marathon Investigation that was really questioning the veracity of her result uh, has done an exhaustive analysis and ended up publishing another post on this that goes into extreme detail, like analyzing her Garmin data and you know comparing her performance to past other performers, and uh, you know looking at GPX files and graphs, and you know talking to people who were on course, et cetera, and basically concluded, uh, you know this post goes on and on and on forever. We'll link it up in the show notes, but basically ends up saying that he can't help but conclude that her result is legit. So I just wanted to point that out. Okay. Um, there's another guy who on his Substack is not having it. <laughs> I'll link that up as well. Some guy named Kevin Beck wrote a long post about basically saying that he doesn't believe that she did it. But look, the marathon investigator guy, um, you know, he really spent a lot of time looking at this. And uh, towards that end, Chris Kosman, who's the race director of yep. Badwater, wrote a long post basically saying, she earned this victory and he explains why. And he also highlights a lot of other outstanding performances that sort of came out of the blue, which is part of the dispute around Ashley. And he includes two of David Goggins's performances, mm. like the first time that he did it, mm. kind of coming out of nowhere as a bigger guy and yep. actually you know, really um, distinguishing himself and then coming back with a huge improvement on the year before and basically says this is, there is historical precedent for this. So anyway. Mm. Well, if Kosman says so, I believe him. Chris Kosman, I mean, he's run that race forever. He's, and has, he's has the seen law it on bad water. Yeah, and while we're you know talking about 130 mile races on tarmac, <laughs> we got to talk about O's. O's Back Perlman. in the news again. Friend of the pod. Back in it. He, he came on the pod because of Adam. Adam is you know the contact point there, the connective tissue. O's not only uh, is this unbelievable mentalist, he broke Robbie Ballinger's Central Park record. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about that before. And then um, must've been two weeks ago, I think. He did this extraordinary challenge where he ran 130 plus miles from Montauk, the very tip of Long Island, like out past the Hamptons, 
all the way to Manhattan, 130 Times miles Square. on city streets to Times Square. And he did it in 21 hours. Unbelievable. Which is crazy. Crazy. Including throwing down like six minute plus pace during the last five or 10K yep. and running a five, I think he ran a 556 final mile. Yes. He, he that call, guy's a freak. He's a freak. I, he called me, I think mile 70-ish or something. I talked to him during, uh, and uh, he had just come through a hellish period because it was hot. It was like the hottest day of the year. Mm-hmm. He also did it, you know, <laughs> hottest, yeah, hottest know. most humid day of the year. I know. And so and he it's had, just pavement, like yeah. oppressive humidity. Yeah, and he made it, you know, he said there were some darker moments. This was harder obviously than the um, Central Park thing. Mm-hmm. And there were dark, even, you know, there were darker moments. I mean, it was mostly because of the weather, I think. And he, you know, he definitely- He dug a hole, but then he crawled out of it. He, he, went, he, he saw the darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which is unusual because right. it all seems like a breeze with him yeah. for some reason. Well, cause he goes hard too, he goes quick, yeah. you know, he goes quick, um, but he was able to keep going and killed it once he got into Manhattan. And then I think as in true O's form, got on a plane the next day and I flew to Tampa Bay to like to entertain do, the Tampa Bay Bucks yeah. and hang out with he's, Tom Brady. Yeah, he's with Tom Brady the day after. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after yeah. the Central Park thing, he went directly the to Masters. Augusta. The Masters, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I spoke to Robbie Ballinger about it briefly and um, he, you know, he loves O's. He was, you know, he's so impressed with, you know, how much faster O's ran the Central Park thing than, than he did. Um, and he pointed out aptly that O's is a guy who, although he has, you know, quite a profile as a mentalist, is sort of like uh, not given his due in the ultra running community. Like really? they're not, well, when you think of the great ultra runners, like he doesn't come to mind, right. but his performances are, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. And so the hope with this, you know, Montauk to Manhattan thing was that that would put him on the map in a new and interesting way. And, you know, Robbie wanted to help do that. So Robbie and Reese Robinson, who used to work for me as a content creator, have created this thing called the Audacious Report, which is a YouTube channel that is making really high-end documentaries or mini documentaries about athletes and races in the ultra running world. So they chronicled, Oz's Montauk to Manhattan thing, and I'm sure they're editing together something amazing. They shared it. You know, you should follow Audacious Report on Instagram yep, if you're interested in this stuff because, yeah. like, their Instagram stories, like, you can follow these things in real time. That's how I followed the Oz yeah, run. Yeah, me yeah. Too. Um, and I think they were really in Leadville cool. just. Yeah, recently. which brings us to Leadville yeah. because they went there to chronicle Hella, our boy Hella Sidibe, yeah. um, running not only running Leadville for the first time. As far as I know, it's his first, even though he's run across the country and first he's the first uh, you know, black person to do that, he had never really done a race. Like any an race. Ultra, any ultra race. So he'd done 10Ks or marathons? I'm sure he had, yeah, I'm sure he's, yeah, I think he's done a lot of that, that kind of stuff, but right. I don't think he's you know, entered a formal ultra right. and really doesn't have much experience on trails, period. Like okay. he lives in New Jersey and runs city streets and right. relatively flat terrain, um, but, he put Leadville on the calendar. He went out early to spend time with Robbie. Um, they like, he was like living with him, I think. And Robbie lives in a small Colorado town and they went up to Leadville for like a training camp so he could recon the course and all of that. 
And uh, he did good. Our boy did pretty good. He ran Leadville in 27.44. Amazing. He was the 146th finisher overall, the 118th male. He was 41st in the 30 to 39 age group. Um, so it's not like, oh, he just went out and, and no. won it. But I was very interested to see how he was gonna do. Cause when you see him running, you know, on his Instagram or whatever, he has this incredibly beautiful oh, yeah. long stride. He looks like a, a gazelle, like a, you know, a track and field athlete. That's what a runner should look like, I yes. think, when I see that. But that's not how, <laughs> that's not how I look. Like, that's not how <laughs> races like Leadville go. No, right, it's like, what's right. gonna happen? Like, yes, he ran across the United States. You're saying He's you don't wanna lift, athlete. you don't He's necessarily wanna have fit. the high stride as much, right? <laughs> well, there's a lot of walking right. and climbing right. and, you know, and, it's a Altitude, whole different cold. kind of thing, you yeah, know? So yeah. in my mind, it was like, he's either gonna absolutely destroy and crush it or he's gonna not finish. And so I think he seems like he ran a really smart race. And I'm sure a lot of that had to do with Robbie's Sage Council. Right. And interestingly, he beat Harvey Lewis by like an hour, our mm-hmm. boy Harvey, who is a, you know an unbelievably um, successful elite ultra you know, distance competitor. But I would say, look, Harvey does so many races, you know, like yeah. guys like doing hundred mile races, like almost every weekend or really? every other weekend, you know, what would have happened if Harvey made Leadville his number one priority and focused on that probably would have been a bit of a different thing. But, you know, for context, Hella being, you know, in his very first ultra and, you know, besting Harvey is, is like no small thing. So congrats to both of them. Love both you guys. And just also for context, the winner, Adrian McDonald, did it in 16 hours and five minutes, which is unbelievable. It's gotta be a record, right? Is that a Leadville I record? I don't think it is. Okay. I don't know. I should probably know that, but I, I don't think it's a record, but it's a crazy 16 time. hours. It's a crazy yeah, you time. You have to do this Hope Pass climb. I mean, yeah. you're going up to 12,900 yeah. feet. It's, it's just, between you know, 10 and 12.5, right? It's like, it's, and it was like raining at yeah. one point. It's cold. Ugh. Unbelievable. Um, and shout out to Claire Gallagher, the women's winner, uh, who completed it in 19 hours and 37 minutes. It's also mental. No, basically, yeah, like uh, uh, just eight hours faster than Hella. Right. <laughs> right? Insane. Yeah, she's a very gifted athlete as well. I mean, Adrian McDonald going 11 hours faster than Hella. Right. Well, some of these, I mean, I, I would, I wonder where Adrian is based. Claire's based in Boulder, you know, like mm. she, like a lot, I would imagine a lot of the like top ultra people. They live at altitude, they live, at altitude. They live in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't live in a New Jersey suburb. No. Yeah. Anyway, um, you can find all the results at Athlinks. Um, if you're watching on video, you can see what it looks like here. We'll link that up in the show notes if you wanna check that out. And uh, we interesting to see if Hella- look forward to the Audacious Report yeah. uh, documentary that is hopefully to come. And I, I, I'm interested to see if Hella does more of these. Um, he looked pretty stoked. He looked great at the end. Yeah, I know. Well, he does that. He does his know, thing. His, his trademark. I love it. You know, what do you call that? I don't know, Jason, do you do that flying? at the end of one of your runs? <laughs> yeah. No, well, <laughs> Jason doesn't do that. <laughs> well, we should shout out Blake who just ran the Bulldog 50K. Did he? This past weekend. Yeah, man. I missed that. I know, see? Blake. All these runners losing weight, eating plant-based, conquering ultras. I'm not even- Get, get on board, bro. I won't even be able to get a Rolly nomination next I'm just year. trying to get my back <laughs> sorted so I can join them. It looked like you were running recently. A little bit. Yeah, like I'm, my back is relatively stable. I'm not pain-free and I'm just testing it out with some really light zone one kind of walk, jog, hike nice. kind of things. I started that when I was in London. 
I would just go out in the morning and spend three hours kind of walking a little bit. Then I would jog a little bit then I'd walk and just, I just wanted to see how the back would hold up. Uh, and it didn't seem to exacerbate it. It's not like, oh, it's gone and I have a green light to just go full bore. So I'm being very gentle on myself, but for my mental health, just to get out and elevate my heart rate a little bit has been nice. That's you know? great, man. So Happy to hear that. Um, Back to the mountains, we got UTMB, which yep. starts today. So okay. we're recording this on Monday, August 22nd. It's a whole week of races. It's not just one race. Uh, I know John McAvoy, he just texted me some images. He did one of the races, I think maybe the 40K, I'm not sure. But the big one is coming up this weekend. It's gonna be an interesting showdown. I think that there's a really good chance that some American women can distinguish themselves this year. I think the, the race to watch on the men's side uh, is going to be Jim Walmsley, who moved to France to train with Francois Den, uh, who I also did a podcast with that's coming up soon. Uh, Jim has had trouble cracking this race. I think this will be his fourth attempt. He's never won it. This year he forewent the Western States 100 to really just focus on this race. Kind of the way Lance Armstrong was the first to really focus on the Tour de France. Like right. he didn't do all, he like opted out of a lot of the other races just so he could, he was like, this is the one that matters. I think it's interesting that that Jim is having that approach to UTMB. And this is With this goal trail, being the first Mont Blanc. Mont Blanc. Yeah. And so is this considered- It's the most prestigious kind of celebrated ultra trail race in the world. In like, the world, it's like above Like the spectators come out, it's like an insane okay. media circus. Okay. It's like a really big deal. It's the Boston um, Marathon. And no ultra. American has ever won it. Okay. So that's what everyone's gonna be looking for, but okay. he's gotta go up against Killian and there's some other, you know, interesting competitors. Uh, so we'll see what Killian's happens. Killian's gonna be there? Um, Killian's gonna be there. Is he Sage a past Kennedy. champion? Killian has won it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't even know how many yeah. times. Won it a bunch, three or four times. Uh, Camille Heron is doing it, so that'll be cool. Friend of the pod and uh, stay tuned. We'll report back on that. But from the mountains to the sea we go. From the mountains to the sea. My vertical blue friend. There was vertical blue for yes, those unfamiliar. Yes, the quote unquote, I, am I quoting myself? The Wimbledon of free diving? I don't know. It now has been said by so many people in so many different publications, I can't even remember. Leah Barrett, the great photographer, I think uh, defined it that way to me way back when. And I stole it from her and put it in print. Hmm. Uh, you plagiarizing bastard. It's not plagiarizing, it's, it's a, what's it called? It's a- License. Yeah, it's a, a license. An ode. An ode. Uh, so this year, uh, the big performances, so th just to, to open it up, there are four disciplines that people compete in. There's constant weight, which is with the right, monofin. Hold on one second. Yeah. Let me just say, Yeah. here we are back talking about free diving again. I just <laughs> I have know, to call I it know. out. I know. As much as I try to escape this like strange world that no one cares about. Yeah. Here we are again. I specialize in strange are, worlds that no one cares about. We should get, is there like a governing body to free dive? There is, they I'm gonna be, talk about they that. They should be paying us for all this promotion. After what I have to say, they might not <laughs> want to. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, let's start with the good. Basically just to break it down, there are four disciplines. There's constant weight. That's keep with, it brief though. That's with the monofin. There's free immersion where you pull yourself down a rope and back um, again, all on one breath. There's the constant no fins. That means they're just doing a breaststroke down, basically a modified mm -hmm. breaststroke and back. 
And then there is constant weight bifins, just like you see Orlando in this photograph right, right here. It's the long bifins you see spear fishermen really flexible, wear. Yeah, long, very flexible. Individual foot, not exactly. A and they are tethered to a line. They swim down on one breath, grab a tag, and bring it up. And then once they get to the surface, they have to prove that they're with it. And there's mm -hmm. a surface protocol involved. And if they are, they get a white card, they get points, they get credit for if it's a record. There were two men's world records at this event. One was 127 meter free immersion dive from Mateusz Molina from Poland, who I've seen dive once before and uh, a mega performance. He had tried it twice. The first attempt, he did not make it. The second, he turned early. The second attempt, he did make it. And then there was 120 meters from Arnaud Gerald. Um, he is a 26 year old young stud. I think he's the most exciting young athlete on the men's side that we've seen in quite some time in this sport. So it's pretty great because he did something mm -hmm. that we had never seen with bifins. Bifins weren't even a category when I was kind of cataloging all this for one breath. But at, the, at that time, I don't think people even got to 100 meters in bifins mm -hmm. because uh, you know scissor kicking, especially you can't even do it really that efficiently. Right. Most people who compete even with bifins are doing a dolphin kick. Dolphin is a way more efficient. This guy kicks scissor kicks back from depth. Hmm. It's amazing. I, I put a video. I showed, going I think, down though, does he? NPR has a video. Um, I didn't see the first 20 meters. By the time I saw a video, he was already free falling in the video I saw. I, I sent you an NPR clip that they put it on their Instagram of Arno. Um, and I spoke with him and he is uh, just really a delightful guy. He grew up spear fishing in France and just fell in love with um, going deep and he always used bifins. It was like second nature for him. Mm -hmm. And so for the last five years, he's been able to have sponsors and compete uh, and just focus as a professional athlete. Um, and he is going to start looking at the monofin because I mean, if you're doing 120 and bifins, what's your potential with a monofin? Remember the record is 130 meters. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, Alexi's world record. And Alexi wasn't there. And that brings us to Ada. Uh, he was banned from Vertical Blue it's called the Wimbledon of freediving and they took it literally. The, Ada is the governing body. Ada is the governor body of, there's two competing ones, but for this, Ada is the governing body. And uh, they took that Wimbledon for freediving literally and banned Russians, mm -hmm. wouldn't let Russians compete. Um, as if Vladimir Putin has any idea what vertical blue or Ada yeah. is. Uh, and so Alexei, who has obviously is not in favor of any of this was banned. And it's unfortunate because then you would have had a chance to have records broken back. Uh, speaking to Alexi, he's highly confident he could, he's going to take both records back when he's allowed to. He's hoping to get a pass from Ada to compete in the next competition coming up. He's training right now in, in Kosh, Turkey. And he's told me that what he thinks the human limit is on these dives, people aren't even scratching yet. He says he has a lot left in him and is eager to do it. Um, but he also was of good spirits. He's, he, you know, Arno is one of the Molchanov's athletes, mm -hmm. loves Arno and was really happy for him. And so like his just, the way he talked about it, uh, it was amazing. So uh, it's unfortunate, I think for Vertical Blue and for Ada that, that they would ban their best athlete. It just seems, especially, when they're trying to sell like pay-per-view to get to see the dive eye and you don't have your best athlete there, just it struck me as a kind of a, the wrong choice. On the women's side, Alenka Artnik is the deepest woman ever on constant weight. And she had hit 120, 125 meters in training. And that would be a new world record. She attempted 123 meters. I think her record's 122. She attempted 123 meters on her first dive and didn't make it. 
Um, in fact, I think she blacked out. It was her first blackout in competition. She never had that before. Her second dive, she dialed it back, hit 111 meters comfortably, good enough to win that discipline, but that was the only white card dive she did. She kind of hinted at burnout on her Instagram and has taken a step back. And it just shows you that like, this obsession, compulsion to keep going, to keep going, it can, it can bite back at you, which I've heard of from mm-hmm. other athletes. So obviously I'm a huge fan and respect Alenka a lot. So I'm hoping that uh, you know everything's good and she's back out there. Fatima Karok of Hungary won the overall for women. And that's it. I wanna shout out also to my pal, a great free diver from Japan named Tetsuo Ohara, who is more of our gen. Um, and he, I've been, you know, he's been at every competition I've, I've been at, uh, I think. Every time I've been to Vertical Blue, he's been there. And um, he's come and dove with us at Doom a couple of times and he hit 96 meters, his personal mm. best. So that's, that's pretty cool. Wow. Um, and so that's that. Congrats also to Will Truebridge on another great event. Um, you know, I really hope to get back to Long Island one day and see these guys compete. It's fun to see Orlando Bloom there, pretty cool. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's you know what caught my attention is Orlando Bloom's Instagram post, yeah, uh, where he this is gorgeous photograph of him. That's him right there with the bifins, is it not? Yeah, and he got on the line. I think he did. You know, there, there's opener dives, and they have whoever like they kind of give that out to tribute. So like kind of the first pitch, and so I don't know if he did an opener dive. I think he did, and so I don't know how deep he went, but he got on the line and did a dive. Yeah, he was, I think he was there. Camilla Jabber, I don't, I don't it might be Haber. Um, she's from Mexico. She did some national records and she works as stunt doubling in the film business. So it seems like right. he was there to see her. So maybe they've crossed paths. Um, and so, so Alexi's cool. world record is 130. 130 meters with constant weight. And he had, uh, I think it was 126 meters in free immersion. And I mean, just imagine that. Yeah. That's. And then you got to go back, right? So yeah. double that. Right. And now imagine basically swimming that distance in a pool without taking a breath. Well, so swimming two hundred and sixty meters. So and that, that that isn't even accounting for you know all of the pressure and all of that kind of stuff. Like yeah, it's unbelievable. Dynamic is what you're talking about, and I, I'd have to look what the world record is in dynamic, and that's going back and forth. And it, the, it looks like the world record for dynamic is almost 300 meters. Let me see. Uh, yeah, 300 meters. And that's Mateus as well, mm-hmm. uh, Molina. So he has that. So that's 300 meters in a pool, back and forth, back and forth. Unbelievable. One breath. I know. One yeah, breath. They're, I mean, they're holding their breath for like four minutes, you know, swimming. And you, the, the, the record for, right now talking to Alexi, he thinks like the record, like he thinks the human limit for constant weight is like 150 meters. That's what he thinks, something right. close to that. And he's brewing up a special event that uh, I won't leak now and hopefully it, it comes to fruition, but it's another big spectacle. So he's, I think he took it personally and he's thinking of different ways of coming back to it, but at the same time, he took it lightly. So mm-hmm. it's both at the mm-hmm. same time. So, you know, I just think anytime, I, th- I thought the same thing with Wimbledon, I think to hold Russian athletes accountable for the decisions of very few people in government, in this case, one person who is obviously seems bent is just silly. It doesn't make any sense yeah. to me. And that's and, another thing yeah. that we talked about with uh, with Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, because his whole legacy of speed thing is all about like the the intersection of sport and activism and the role of the athlete at the Olympiad. And you know, the conclusion when you kind of look down through history is that these bands are really ineffective. They might be 
you know, motivated by good concerns, sure. but they're not actually doing anything, like actually allowing the athletes who are victims in all of this to compete and perhaps providing an opportunity for the athletes to have the ability to be activists should they choose to is a better route towards addressing that concern. Agreed. You know, anyway. banning Medvedev, who I think was the world number one at the time from Wimbledon, and like he's not Djokovic. We're ba- like we're banning Djokovic, and you know, it's it's like there's a lot of banning going on. Mm-hmm. It's like to me, like Djokovic was banned from Australia for the Australian Open. He's a banned for here. I don't agree with his take on vaccines. I don't agree with it at all. I think it's a mistake. I think he has shown some behavior that is questionable uh, at times during this uh, thing. But, but to me, he's him. the greatest. He's arguably the best ever. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're running the tennis competition, like you can't tell me that the guy, it's not like he's the number one ranked person and he's just a new guy. He's been around for a right. long time. He's made a lot of these people, a lot of money. He's great for the sport and you can't make a special exception for one of the greatest of all time. See, I personally, I understand rule of law, but I think we can make exceptions for the greatest of us. I think, I think mm. we can, I mm. think we can. You're such an elitist. I'm, that's not, is that elitism? <laughs> is that elitism? I'm not, I'm not saying oh, the, the, elitism the greats, is, the I greats think can I'm break great. the rules, Adam. That's what you're saying. I'm saying. See, now we're, now we're like tiptoeing into the culture war. <laughs> I'm not saying the greats can- Trying to can, stay away from this. I know. Adam. I'm not saying the greats can break the rules. I'm yes, saying there exactly should be- exactly what you're saying. No, I'm saying there should be exceptions to certain rules for exceptional human beings. Right, that's inherently by definition an elitist statement. <laughs> But I'm, but I'm not one of those people. No, I just believe this thing, but I'm not that. Okay, here we are. Let's cut that it's out, a, guys. Look, cut, it's cut a slippery slope right back into Alex Jones and Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. Here we are again, no matter Listen, what we try to do. You can say that anything you want about me going to Mar-a-Lago and hanging out with Alex Jones, but like you wouldn't take that invitation. Well, just out of pure fascination, you would have to, right? Folks, I did not go to Mar-a-Lago to dine, <laughs> to brunch without, I don't even like brunch, I hate brunch. Um, okay, one last person to fetch. Yeah, one last person. We gotta, we gotta take an ad break here in a second, so. Antonio Arguez, the yes. Stanford great. Unbelievable, Your fellow guy. Stanford alum. This guy just completed what is called the 40 bridges for those not in the know who mm. aren't following the day by day ins and outs mm. of, of marathon swimming. The 40 bridges is the double Manhattan swim. It's basically swimming all the way around Manhattan twice. Mm-hmm. It's 91.8 kilometers. In other words, 42 miles. He just did it. And not only did he do it, he's not the first to do it. Like they've, no. the 40 bridges is a thing. Like many people have done it, but he did it in less than 20 hours. And he's the oldest person to have ever done it. How old is he? He's in a- is 63. Like 60? Yeah, 63. 63. Wow. And he, he did, he's the oldest to do the Ocean Seven, which are the, you know, the seven great crossings. He's the oldest to do that. And he did that at 58 years old. I wrote about him for the New York Times there. And then later he came, approached me. I, I helped him write his book, Forever Swim, which is, was originally published in Spanish and now is, is available in English as well. And this last few years, he's been focused on doing the double, triple crown. So he did double Catalina, mm-hmm. oldest to do that. Tried to do double English last year and was like three to five miles, maybe at the most from, from doing it. Mm-hmm. And it just, he got caught in one of those tides and yeah. he couldn't go and it just got cold and he got hypothermic and they pulled him. And he was literally a couple of miles or something. I forget what it was, but he saw, I mean, he was there near Dover. And so that's tough, but did he 
let that push him back. No, he does this. He's already got a boat ready for double English again in 2024. Yeah, good for him. So he's got to figure out what it's he's crazy. Do when you see year. this guy, he's like, he's a big burly, you know, barrel chested guy. Like these open barrel water, bellied. yeah, open water guys are always very robust. He calls it his bioprene. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta have that. Like, he, <laughs> you gotta put on, you know, you gotta get like, you, you gotta get the whale blubber going if you're gonna go and do these things for flotation and for maintaining core body temp. Yeah, and he trains in Las Aztecas, Las Aztecas, Aztecas a, ri- a river um, outside Mexico City mm-hmm. where he trains. Uh, he also trains in the pool, lives in Mexico City and really great, fun, amazing intellectual type guy. And uh, anyway, Always fun, always has mariachis at the end. He, had, he found yeah. some mariachis to party with at the end. So that's fun, it's on his Instagram. It's such a cool accomplishment. Yeah. And yet, you know, here we are talking about it. There's no press on this. No. A, I Googled it, there's not one. I mean, there's an article like Steve Mutatonis did a piece saying that he was going to do it. And it was an article about the various competitors who were gonna tackle the 40 bridges, but not one article was written about the result or you know what he had accomplished. I couldn't pitch him because uh, I couldn't bring it to the New York Times because we covered him when he did Ocean 7. So it's unclear if they would have done it again anyway. Yeah. And also because I collaborated with him on his book, it's kind of, I can't really can't, now can't, pitch can't, stories yeah, on him because I know can't. him too well, yeah. we're friends. Yeah, so, so, much, point, so much for me ever being in the New York Times ever again. I mean, it's not gonna be for me, <laughs> pal, all right? All right, let's Let's take a break. Let's make that clear. Let's take a break and we'll be back with whatever we're back with. (laughs) We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? 
If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Um, all right, are we back rolling? Yep. I feel like our energy is good. We're, we have a good flow. Is it just because we haven't done it in a while? I'm just happy to see you. You know, um, I have that effect on a lot of people. I call it rapport. And yeah. everywhere I go, I try to cultivate <laughs> rapport. Did you come up with that word? Sometimes rapport does, is not reciprocated initially, yeah. but give me time. I will build rapport, whether you like it or not. All right, well, let's, uh, let's continue to cultivate that, my friend. It's <laughs> good, I love, I love I like sweet it. rapport. Um, once again, we are resisting the impulse to partake in the culture wars. We yes. are not gonna talk about Donald Trump. We are not gonna talk about Alex Jones. Who we are gonna talk about is one Rain Wilson, mm. Dwight Schrute from The Office. Why are we Heard talking about this, Adam? Because you put a video up, a highlight reel. You're doing these cool clips now. You're doing these highlight clips on your, on your Instagram which I, I love, by the way, do you, they also go, do you have a TikTok? Are they going on a TikTok They're going thing on too? TikTok too, although I don't have anything to do with TikTok. Okay. AJ, AJ manages that. But account. tell people how this all started because like, I think people would be interested in why, because you've just kind of launched these and, and right. obviously people are loving them, but uh, so tell us how that so, how it started. So when I, when I had COVID for the second time yeah. and I was lying in bed all day, bored out of my mind, I just thought like my relationship to Instagram has always been relatively cavalier. Like, yeah, I throw up, pictures from the latest podcast. I always make announcements about, you know, who's on the show. Uh, but beyond that, like I don't treat it like a business. It's sort of like I post when I feel like it. And mm -hmm. I just don't wanna be beholden to it or feel like it's an onerous thing. Um, but while I was lying in bed, I was like, and, and so I probably was posting, I post once a week or twice a week or something like that. Uh, but I'm lying in bed and we have all this content because for every episode we generate all these videos and we have all these assets and I end up sharing like a tiny fraction of what we actually have historically going back over like, you know, hundreds of episodes. And I thought, well, I'm just here. I wonder what would happen if I just bled the feed and just like posted three times a day. Like, why not? Let's just see what happens. Um, so I started doing that particularly video because I know that Instagram is favoring that right now and there's a lot of shifts in you know their algorithm and what they're serving up to people and all, people are disgruntled about that and you can be angry and wish that Instagram was different than it is or you can just be like well 
this is what's happening right now. Let's see what happens if I just get on board with that and start, you know, sharing what what they're favoring. And so I mm-hmm. did that. And these videos ended up getting a lot of views and we added like a hundred thousand new followers to the Instagram account in like two weeks. Mm. Like the growth was ridiculous. Mm. And the thing about it is if the algorithm doesn't like the video, then no one sees it anyway. So it's not like, why is Rich posting so many videos? Right. Uh, so from that experience, we sort of came back and said, well, let's really prioritize this. How can we elevate the aesthetic of the reels that we're showing. So we're distinguishing ourselves and, and really presenting the wisdom of the podcast guests in the most elegant way possible. And the team, um, specifically Dan, you know, came up with this new design, which I love and it's beautiful and people seem to enjoy. And some of these videos have gone on to do millions of views, but the one video that is the real viral outlier is this, clip from the podcast that I did with Rain Wilson and Reza Aslan, where Rain goes on a bit of a jaunt about how to spend your time as a 20 something, basically saying right. that you know, young people, college age people are overly concerned with their future and super stressed out and are having you know, higher rates of depression, et cetera, because of the pressures incident to trying to figure out what to do with your life. And his message was basically like, don't sweat it. Like your twenties are for experimentation. They're for going out in the world, gathering experiences and not worrying about your career trajectory and just enjoying your life while you don't have a lot of ties or or responsibilities or obligations. And so maybe we should just play the video because it's just a quick clip. The 20s are a waste of time. Like, don't even worry about it. Don't try and get it yeah. figured out. Like, you're, the point of your 20s is to try 12 different things and fail at nine of them. Mm-hmm. But truthfully, in society right now, you talk to so many college kids and they're so depressed at 2021 because they don't, they haven't gotten the perfect internship over the summer and they're not mm-hmm. pre-enrolled in the perfect grad program and they don't have their, um, you know, their their job. Line. Now I know it's hard to make a living out there. You know, it's hard to have a career and make a living. It's much harder than in the 80s and 90s when we were, you know, getting our educations. But nonetheless, if you view the 20s as a workshop stage, then it gives yeah. you some, so you can relax a little bit. Mm. So anyway, um, that video has, as of the moment of this recording, accumulated 20.7 million views. Mm. So it's been viewed more than any other piece of content I've ever shared on the internet. Mm. Um, And the reason that I'm bringing it up isn't just because it was viral, it's because the comment section here was so evenly split. On the one hand, you had people um, saying, yes, absolutely, I agree. This is what I did during my 20s and I had such an enriching experience and it informed everything that I do today and I wouldn't trade it for anything, matched by an equally loud number of people saying, this is the worst advice ever. Right. Like what a privileged, you know, white old man, you know, I, I, I just, you know, this is, this is like, you don't understand my lot in life. You, you, you have no idea how hard it is right now, et cetera. And I just thought that that was super interesting to see that divide. And I don't have the demographics on the divide, but right. I would suspect that the people who are disputing this are either young people who are having a really hard time right now or are people who have just, you know, struggled in, you know, sort of dire uh, circumstances to like make their way in the world. Yeah. 
And what's your take on it? Well, do you sign you know, with as Team a, as Rain a cisgendered, or? <laughs> uh, you know, privileged white male? Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I share Rain's perspective. Yeah. I did not take that advice as a young person. I was one of those people who was very stressed out and career oriented. And now looking back, I wish that I had spent my time in my twenties to really figure out who I wanted to be. And the only way that you can do that is by trying lots of things and failing at them and having many, many, many experiences and not worrying so much about the ladder of your career trajectory. And this is something that's been echoed by lots of wise people that I've had on the podcast, perhaps most notably by like Stephen Pressfield, who had a million jobs, like was in the military and mopped floors. And I don't even know, you know, like a, just a whole bunch of jobs that put him, you know, in uh, communities of people that he wouldn't have otherwise met, put him in circumstances and environments that were very different from what he was used to. And I think when you do that, you become a more, you know, kind of robust individual. You understand different walks of life, different perspectives. Um, you start to figure out what you enjoy doing and what you don't enjoy doing. It's hard to intellectualize that. Like you have to go into the world and do things to find out like, oh, that that's not what I thought it was. It's not for me. Or wow, this thing I never thought of before, like has led me into this other direction, which is fantastic. And I think to put a button on that uh, thought, you know, the person who comes to mind is David Epstein, who wrote this wonderful book, Range, that I talk about constantly on mm -hmm. the podcast. And his whole thesis is that when you canvas exceptional performers across all facets of expertise from science to art and sports and business, et cetera, the people who are truly exceptional are generally people who have done the very thing that Rain is talking about, done many, many, many things over the course of their careers that end up creating this very unique set of skills that unbeknownst to them makes them perfectly suited to be doing the thing that they excel at later in life. Hmm. And I think there's something really cool about that and interesting. Now, when you're 20 years old and you're going out into the world and you're trying to make a living and stand on your own two feet, it's hard to hear that, right? Because it is harder now than it used to be. And it's not 1988 when I got out of college, 1989. It's a very different world. It's much more competitive. And there is this increase in wealth inequality, but this, this you know, exacerbating gap between the haves and the have nots. And there's a lot more have nots than there are haves and the haves are getting fewer and fewer and the middle class has completely disappeared. So it does, I do understand why it would land as quite indulgent to say, go fuck off for 10 mm -hmm. years and travel the world. But I do think if you can find a way to do that and not worry, like, like live as leanly as possible. Like don't like, you know, don't pay rent somewhere. Like try to find a way to make ends meet and you know live a bit of a pauper's lifestyle so that you can have experiences that is a gambit that I support. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to know people. I mean, that this is like, your life too, but like right. we're older white guys, so well like, it, to understand. I think maybe the part difference of the blowback, in what it is now. I think part of the blowback is he's like treat your twenties as a workshop stage. He meant it, but you know that shows a perspective of looking back. But when you're in your twenties, the pressures feel so real that it, you can't, it's hard to look at your life as a workshop mm -hmm. stage. No one really looks at their life that way. Yeah, except, like the clock's ticking, I'm getting Except behind. in retrospect, mm -hmm. but he's not wrong. I agree with what he's saying, but in, in a way, 
all of life is a workshop stage. You know, like the way I look at it is all of life is a workshop stage. It's about getting to know yourself and be your, yourself and be your best self. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's what it's about. Right, and, I think his, sorry to step yeah. on your words, but when he said your 20s are a waste of time, that's like the first thing he says in the clip. And I think that's being misconstrued. Right. Like he's not really saying they're a waste of time. He's just saying, don't sweat it. Like, don't worry about it. There's like what, what you do now isn't mission critical to what you're gonna be doing in your 30s and, and your And so 40s. the only thing I push back on is it is. But well, it's not. But it's, it's, it's in a not different, linear. In a way, it's not, not in a way that you think. It's non-linear. Right? And not in a way that you can. Yeah. You, that you, you can't predict. quantify it. And you do yeah. have to be like. There's control issues that come into play right. too. Like you kind of have to be a little faith-based. Like I know I'm like mopping a floor, you know, in some you know diner in Ecuador right now. But you know, this will actually be informative later in life in a way that I don't know. Or just it's a fucking crazy experience, right? Like how am I this guy from Santa Monica mopping a floor in Ecuador? This is fucking wild. Like what is going on right now? It's almost like. The, we talk about wokeness, what about awakeness? You know, like what about being awake to the experiences you're having and not necessarily looking at them as this, something that's going to accumulate and then benefit me as if that's what we're always looking for. How is mm-hmm. this going to benefit me? What if it's benefiting you in just the experience of it? Now that's not to say there, isn't, there aren't dark experiences that can help you, but are not that fun to celebrate while they're happening because there are. And you know, I've had my share and there's a lot more that I haven't had. But I do think that this idea, what he's saying is correct, that what he's saying is there is no such, th- he says 20s are a waste of time, but what he, I think what he's hinting at is there's no such thing as wasted time. So if you go out and have a good time and experiment and do things you didn't think you would get into or that don't necessarily add up in a linear way, it's to your benefit later when it all starts to crystallize. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with him. I think the semantics is where people got, got missed. And in terms of like the wealth inequality and how that plays into it, I find that really interesting because we were talking about this and just we kind of came in a, in a loop back to an article I shared with you on Defector, which mm-hmm. Defector is the place that a lot of the people from Deadspin <laughs> Migrated to? Yeah, I had never been to the Defector website before. I believe it drew Magary and like and like all these these writers after Deadspin went down in the wake of the whole Gawker thing, Mm -hmm. right? They created their own Mm. kind of uh, reporter-owned thing called the Defector. Kelsey McKinney, one of the founders, co-founders of the Defector, wrote this great piece. Um, the money is all is in all the wrong places, and it's about wealth and equality, but through the lens of Sydney Sweeney, the actress from Euphoria and White Lotus, uh, her career basically. She's mm-hmm. using her career as this lens to then explore wealth and equality, um, and it's about Sydney's interview. I think it was in Variety or Hollywood Reporter. I forget where Maybe she would, Vanity Fair was it. Was it? Okay, Vanity Fair. Look, and it was about she. Um, kind of like oh, comparing- Hollywood Reporter, Hollywood sorry, Reporter. And it was an interview and it kind of compared Sydney to some of her peers who come from kind of legacy household. Sydney grew up, um, she was not wealthy from Spokane, Washington. When they moved, to, they all lived in a motel in LA while she was trying to make it in Hollywood. And she does not come from money. And it's about how she's used her Instagram. If you go on her Instagram, you see she's, she's making deals mm-hmm. and she's always working. And part of that reason is that this era of stars is not you know, gilded as much as this era is before them because of the way things are. And, 
And what Kelsey's getting at is because of the way the money has filtered up top. And even the stars aren't making what they used to. And so if that's true, what, what about everybody else? What about writers? And she goes on to talk about Ernest Hemingway used to make a dollar a word in the thirties. Sometimes I make less than that today, yeah. you know, like I'm obviously that no That would Ernest be equivalent Hem- to $21 a, a word $21. in today's economy. Right. I think I've and made- nobody makes that. Nobody makes that. She's saying she's never known anyone make more than $3 a word, I think she said. Um, I've made, I think I've made three bucks a word once, you know, two bucks a word mm-hmm. was like the top that I always wanted to get. But often now with, with all these different places to sell your, your writing, I still only go to kind of a tried and true place I've always, I've always mm-hmm. gone to because I like those outlets, but also because I'm just used to going to editors I know. Um, those prices have come down, but there's more opportunities. So a lot of people now, it's easier in a way to get published than it ever was, but you're getting paid a lot less. You know, yeah. Instead of a buck 50 or a buck, you're getting 50 cents or less. And so she talks about that and she has this great line. The shadow of our destiny is racing towards us. A promise that meritocracy was a lie and that we all live in and with the stagnant reality of that. There's a dread building, a bleakness that is already casting a shadow on the future. Maybe you feel it. Mm. I think meritocracy was always a lie, but it's an interesting question about like where this is all leading. So that's the article anyway. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's sort of interesting and compelling about this is that it's a diatribe on wealth inequality through like the parlance of the internet because it's a hot take, right? Mm-hmm. Like Sweeney is somebody who got piled on because in this Hollywood Reporter piece, she was saying like, I, look, I'd like to have a baby and I can't take off from work right. while she lives in a $3 million mansion. Right. So she's not exactly a sympathetic no. candidate for a discussion around wealth inequality. And curiously, McKinney takes this perspective that like her point is valid, which is that the artists are not being adequately compensated for the art. And it's not that art isn't making as much money as it always had, if, if anything, it's generating more wealth, but that wealth is being increasingly more and more accumulated by the people who sit behind large desks and have no connection to the actual creation of the art. It's the executives, right? And it used to be, it's always been that way, right? But it used to be, and they use the example of Jennifer Aniston, like you're on a hit show and it's syndicated and then you have passive income for life and you create generational wealth. And now in the streaming era, it doesn't work that way anymore. And although Sweeney, who's one of the top performers in her age bracket and certainly a star on the rise who works all the time and is being well compensated for that, feels like she has to be on her hustle game all the time and has to leverage her Instagram for ads in a way that these other people don't and is criticized for that. But she comes from humble beginnings and sort of feels like this is what I have to do in order to you know, be who I wanna be in the world, right? And the point being made by McKinney is regardless of if you're wealthy or not, or whatever your lifestyle is, like everybody deserves to be able to take time off to have a baby. And in this modern age of increased wealth disparity, when the CEOs and the top brass are just making, you know, outlandish amounts of money and the people who are actually generating the actual things that are creating that wealth are being less and less respected for that, like that's problematic in terms of how our society can cohere long-term. And, you know, it's another example would be like looking at LeBron, like he makes an unbelievable amount of money. But when you look at how much money the NBA generates, like 
there's certainly a very good argument that you could make that he should be paying 10 times what he's getting paid. Right, and when those guys take commercial deals, no one really criticizing it. And you know, when you hear George Clooney or Matt Damon on a ad, no one's criticizing them. Right, like when Matt Damon that. does the. I mean, maybe they are. Maybe they are for crypto. Actually, he did get. He got he dragged did, a little did, bit for that, especially when crypto plummeted. He did. He did. He did. But like, yeah, you see a basketball player doing a Mountain Dew ad right. or a Sprite ad, or it's like, yeah, that's what you do, right? Right, it's part of the business. But somehow that doesn't apply to people's Instagrams in the same way. I also think it's like how people have like acclimated to that personality. Like there's like the Kardashians use their Instagram to sell stuff all the time, right? Right. I don't do that. And occasionally I have branded deals with podcast sponsors that require a social post here and there. And when I do that, like it doesn't go over as well. Right. Why is that? You know? Well, I mean, I think well, first of all, just to clarify a couple of things, because I feel like I kind of made a mess of introducing this article, but listen, nobody cries for Hollywood creators, especially people who are Emmy nominated actors who seem to mm-hmm. have it going on. No one cries for writers, nor should they, by the way. Like we make this choice to go into the business. I don't feel like I'm entitled to anything. But it shouldn't be like you're welcoming martyrdom. No, no, no. When you look at like Ernest Hemingway who lived in beautiful places all over the world to be the writer that he was. He was the most popular novelist at the time in the thirties when he was getting that money. But, um, and he was selling magazines. You know, I'm not defending how little we make now because that's ridiculous. Like it is not equitable. Mm -hmm. But what I guess what I'm trying to say is it was never easy. You know, I had this conversation with Elizabeth Gilbert back way back in the day when I was struggling. And I'm like, God, like it used to be so much easier. Like you think about that, it was so much easier. You got, you got a feature, you could write five features for a magazine a year and make a right. living and pay a mortgage. Like spend three or four months on a Vanity Fair piece. Right, that's what I'd always thought. And then Liz said, it was always hard. It was never <laughs> fucking easy. Like no one asked us to do this. Uh-huh. So like, I'm not down with the, you know, you see it all the time on Twitter, writers complaining about their editors or complaining about how I'm being treated. However, the great Tom Stoddard photographer I worked with once and who I Not was to be a dear confused friend. with Tom Stoppard. No, um, he had this desk fuckwit theory and it was all about like the people in the office don't know what we go through. And then they, you know, make edits or criticize and he called them the desk fuckwits. These are really the desk fuckwits, not the people that are editing, but the people who are at the very, very top. Those are the real desk fuckwits. And they are making too much money and the rich aren't being taxed enough. And because of that, we don't have six months parenting leave in this country while there are certain countries have it. You know, like I think in Austria, both parents can take six months at least off. And so we don't have that. And it's because of the way our society functions. So it's a lens to look at that. And it does affect journalism because then you get, it's basically a star factory now. Mm -hmm. And so now you have star journalists that go out, leave their publications and then are now competing with their publications and their own business, right? You had a couple examples Mm -hmm. and they, what do they end up doing? Leaning into these culture war topics because they can make money. Because the incentive structure so heavily weights and favors that type of discourse and people are wildly rewarded for engaging in that, which makes, you know, exempting yourself from becoming a profiteer in the culture war all the much harder, right? Because the temptation lives there. And it's so interesting to look like just in the journalism context, you know, setting aside, okay, here we have this article about Sweeney and she uses her Instagram, you know, for advertising. And, you know, what does that say more broadly about 
people who are, you know, kind of leveraging the internet to make a living. Like if you're gonna step outside the enclave of the studio movie making business or the newsrooms of print journalism to be an online personality, whether it's, you know, Glenn Greenwald or Matt Taibbi or some of these other very prominent people who have left the protective, you know, cone of their publications to create substacks, then it becomes a situation in which you have to garner subscribers. How do you do that? You have to attract attention to yourself. Well, how do you attract attention to yourself? Is it by writing, you know, long form nuanced articles about how complex everything is? No, it's about having a hot take that will be a flashpoint in the public discourse that will draw eyeballs to you and activate people into subscribing. Mm. And so whether or not these are people acting in good faith or not, and you can have a debate about that, the incentive structures are so powerful to drive people to create that type of content that it creates a different form of, you know, quote unquote journalism altogether. And that's the kind of information landscape that we find ourselves in now. And some people are well suited to, you know, participating in that ecosystem and adhering to their value set and staying true to their journalistic principles and others aren't. And for those that aren't, I'm almost sympathetic towards them because the economics of this are driving behavior in such a powerful way that it almost becomes impossible to resist. And this is something that I think a lot about as a podcaster with a platform, like who are the people that I wanna have on the show? Like I know if I get, you know, if I invite Jordan Peterson on the show, that would probably get a lot of views and a lot of listens, but it's not somebody I'm interested in talking to. So it's like a constant reminder uh, of like, okay, why am I doing this? Who are the people that I value and that I wanna celebrate? Who are the people that I think I can have the most interesting, compelling conversations that are most helpful to the audience and really trying to make sure that I'm staying true to that directive in the midst of, you know, economic temptations that exist out there that I think are pulling content creators in all kinds of directions that, you know, are leading a lot of people, you know, good people astray. These are so interesting points. And when you're talking about it and thinking of it as the economics, as the big magnet that's pulling everything into these different directions or the many magnets that are kind of pulling it all apart. I think of that Ezra Klein article that we also read. Mm -hmm. Um, The medium really is the message kind of goes into Marshall McLuhan and, and it talks about, you know, it goes back into these thinkers and philosophers who were looking at television and the way television impacted culture. And then he takes that and and goes into the internet. And obviously what goes unmentioned in this article is the phone, but the idea is the medium itself is actually the magnet. The medium is what's driving us to this. It's what's driving Sydney Sweeney to feel like she has to make that extra money mm-hmm. in whatever way she can. It's what's driving the writer to like, to write about it and comment on it. It's, it, it's driving the wealth inequality. Right. It's driving all of it. The medium itself is doing that. The medium is what's taken, you know, a Glenn Greenwald or a Matt Taibbi and, and pushed them into reporting in the ways that they're reporting now. It's not a criticism of either. I, I never really was a fan of the way Glenn Greenwald conducted himself and wrote his stuff. I never liked his stuff really. Matt Taibbi, 
love his stuff, always have. But they both have followed this kind of pattern of going from the left now kind of so you know, going to the other side and only questioning the left and they keep hitting that drum and beating that drum. Why? I don't know. I don't know what's happening in their business world, but you're making the question, maybe it's because of this incentive. And it is probably, but maybe it's also the incentive comes from the medium itself. Well, there's the incentive and then there is, you know, the response to the content and the kind of external audience validation uh, that plays into the, you know, not just partisanship, but the true acrimony, right? And when you appeal to a certain group and then you're then championed by that group, it's, it's then, you know, sort of de facto that you're going to feel like you wanna continue to please that group, right? Mm. Which is antithetical to, you know, journalistic ethics. Right. And it is a weird, you know, kind of undefined space in which it's unclear whether this is journalism, is this opinion piece, does it matter, should it matter? Like, what is this? It it totally matters. Like we have way too much opinion in the news. Why do we do that? Is it because we're like, everyone wants a, a, someone talking to them at the camera, everyone wants a certain tone, is it? And it, could we ever find ourselves moving back towards an objective news landscape? Like, I, I don't think so. No, I mean, this you don't put genies back in the bottle, right? Mm-hmm. So the only way is for you then to curate your own life. And like, I'm only and gonna read. that's problematic in its own regard. It is, I mean, it's always been there, right? Do I wanna tune in to this outer world and the strife that's going on or do I not want to? and you gotta find, strike that balance. But the, I think the medium being the message, if you look at it that way, the problem isn't really Matt Taibbi, Glenn, no. s- streaming, the desk fuckwits, whatever. The problem is that we are being driven by this technology in ways that are not necessarily good for the micro, the self or society, the whole. And so, you know, we, it's, it's used that way, but uh, it's viewed that way. This has all been an advancement. This is great, this is great. It's not true. You know, some, some stuff is not great. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a, good art, a good point in the Ezra a piece about, um, is it Jonathan Haidt? He, yeah. he wrote about uh, how there's no fix for a platform that allows teenage girls who are going through puberty to post photos of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, yeah. like you know, looking for approval essentially. And it's I mean, like, height has been really great on this subject matter. Yeah. It's subject matter that I think is incredibly important, and I know it's come up many times on this podcast. But I, I'm becoming more and more convinced that it is a great existential threat to humanity. Yeah, in so many ways, and. You know, I think Jonathan Haidt's work on this is really important. Of course, Tristan Harris, who I'm hoping to get on the podcast soon. Uh, Johan Hari's recent book about his struggle with the phone. And this new book uh, that I'm about to read called The Chaos and the Machine by Max Fisher, who's a New York Times reporter and Pulitzer Prize finalist um, on, the, on this very subject matter, the inside story of how social media rewired our minds and our world. And he's coming on um, next week, so I got get through this book in the next week, but I'm glad that smart people are thinking about this, but I feel strongly that we should all be really thinking about this and considering it profoundly because it is profound. Yeah. And like, 
we don't all have to take every deal, you know, we don't have to make the most, like that's yeah. the thing also. Meanwhile, it's I'm like, just gonna keep throwing reels up on Instagram. Yeah, because that's what the market <laughs> yeah, wants. Right. But there's a point in it's here like, about- I'm, I'm a hypocrite. We're all, that's the modern world. We're all hypocrites, but and, in you know, just we're different small ways. We're coming at you in ones and zeros on the internet. And right. I've made a, you know, a, a living doing this. So it's complicated, man. Me too. I was the biggest critic of Amazon until, you know, I wrote the David book and that's the only place we can really sell it. And, and um, you know, it's in bookstores yeah, too. Amazon but, has is but basically played a huge part in you being able to that's make That's the living. reason I was able to give up half my shifts at Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> right. Um, the, uh, the, the, he said one thing about how like the medium impacts our attention. Obviously we know that, right? It's an attention, it's an attention economy. We're all, we're all like either donating our attention or whoring for attention, excuse my, mm-hmm. my language, but it does affect how you function. And I never read several books at once, except in college. And now I've, uh, I've got like five books going, you know, at all time, like some of it's work related research, some of it's fiction that I wanna read, some of it's like nonfiction I know I should know, um, some of it's flea, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like acid for the children. I actually, yes, I actually really like it. That's what's funny is it actually liberating. I don't see yeah. you juggling five books as problematic though. No, but this I never did before. But, issue. No, but I think it yeah, but shows- your life's different than it was before. Am I making this about me again? No, I, I, I mean, are you trying to make the argument that you? you're lapsing into some kind of attention deficit driven by internet culture. And yes. that's why, yeah, I don't, I don't really see that. No. I don't see the connective tissue between those two things. I think okay. if you were saying I'm struggling to sit down and read for more than 10 minutes at a time without getting antsy, that would be more in line. Okay, retracted. Argument. Yeah. Retracted. But the fact that you're reading, you're like, yeah, it's terrible. I'm reading five books right now. Like most people have trouble getting through one book because right. they're so distracted. Right. So you do you, bro. Sorry, guys. That was I was like <laughs> one of those. That was like one of those. Like you're patting yourself on the back by criticizing yourself. Yeah. That was, yeah. What, <laughs> A humble brag. Humble brag. It's so terrible. I'm reading five I books. I can't at believe once right I've, I've, I've read so well this week. And <laughs> holding down four shifts at the Ben and Jerry's. And raising And a, writing books. And, and raising uh, a, a Spanglish speaking child. Right. Adios. Adios, Adam, to that discussion. <laughs> Sometimes adios is genteel. It's like, adios, I, I'm, I'm needed elsewhere. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's, adios, I'll see you next time. Sometimes it's, Adios. Yeah. Clint Eastwood style. Yeah, like a right. snarl. All right. What are we doing? Uh, we got to get to listener questions. Let's do it. One thing I will point out though, yeah. there was a great uh, long read, very long read in the New York <laughs> Times. I mean, I'm yes. talking like, I think it would take an hour and a half to read this whole article. Uh, it would take most, uh, most people wouldn't finish it quite frankly, right. but I love it. It's called Willie Nelson's Long Encore. Um, it's a beautiful article with amazing beautiful. photographs about you know this legend Willie Nelson, who's now approaching ninety and is still touring like crazy, is still very much you know in his creative juices. He put out nine albums in the past five years, and I just think on the heels of the Mike Fremont podcast mm. coming out, and you know on the subject of like rethinking aging and and embracing longevity and what we're truly capable of. The fact that this, you know, beautiful artist, you know, is still out on the road and like putting music out, 
like there's no tomorrow is something cool to be celebrated. I mean, he's truly a national treasure. I didn't realize that he was that old. He's 89 now. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got emphysema and still singing and playing shows. <laughs> That's crazy. I know. Shout out to Steve Tip, my boy Steve Tip, for recommending this read. And yeah, no dimming of his creative light. No, that 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 makes me feel which a little is better. very inspiring. That makes me glad I took Rain's advice and and wasted my twenties, thirties, and forties because it means I still have a lot to. Yeah, I mean, what uh, do you think? Lot. Like, if Willie Nelson sat down and looked at that Rain Wilson clip, what do you think Willie Nelson would say? He'd be like, "I'm still doing that." <laughs> no, yeah, that's exactly what he would say. <laughs> no, I mean, he's yeah. been he's been you know, I, in that article, Willie Nelson didn't become a hit till he was forty and didn't do his most uh, critically acclaimed work till mm -hmm. he was forty five. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, he he would say he agrees one hundred percent. Sure. Yeah. So there you go. Critics. It's always, but the point I'm trying to make is that he says it's harder now. I'm not so sure. It's always been hard. Well, it's always every, been yeah, hard. Yeah, but but this time, Adam, you don't understand. Yeah. It's harder. And look, it is harder. I'm very sympathetic to young people. And as somebody who I have two stepsons that are 28 and 27, like I have a pretty good sense of what it's like out there through their shared experiences. And it is harder, you know, but that I don't think is worthy enough to you know, excuse the value of trying to figure out a way to have adventures and experiences when you're young, because that is the time to do it. Yep, 100%. Enough said. All right, let's go to listener questions. Listener questions. Adam from Fort Collins. From Adam to Adam. Yeah, if your name's Adam, I'm, I'm putting you right <laughs> to the top. And we should say like, we need more questions. Yes, please. we need more questions, guys. We're, we're, uh, we're skimming the, uh, as they say, yeah. the, the bottom. We need, uh, we need to refill the receptacle. So Call leave us. us a message at 42. I don't think we've called out the number enough. That's part of the problem. 424-235-4626. That's 424-235-4626. Call now. Or not now because I'm about to play it and I'm on the program and then it'll come in and it'll, not now. Operators are standing by. In five minutes. <laughs> hey, Rich and Adam. This is Adam in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I just wanted to know what your guys' thoughts were when it comes to big life goals. I'm wanting to do uh, the Never Summer 60K next year. By far and away, the biggest thing I have done. And my wife thinks that I need to really step away from that goal for this 2023 projection and do some smaller things when I kind of have an accountability mirror and every year I put something bigger on it. And although it scares me, I hear my wife's worries about safety and just being realistic with time. And how do you balance concerns of your loved ones with family and safety? And on the other side, your dreams and your goals that are big and sometimes dangerous? And where does uh, your intuition and kind of instinct fall into all of that? Thanks so much. I cannot wait for every Monday when I see that little blue dot on my Spotify for another podcast. And um, yeah, I just have had my life completely changed by the years of wonderful information and eating a vegan diet for the past year. It's been incredible. Thanks so much, you guys. Have a great day. Uh, thank you, Adam. Great question. Basically, this is a question about the tension between setting big goals and meeting family expectations or having to deal with 
um, perhaps not as much support as you were looking for in your home. And it's tricky, right? Mm -hmm. I think the way that I would answer this is that first of all, like goals are super important. Everybody should have goals. They serve as these powerful, potent lighthouses to kind of really focus and direct your actions. And I think big goals serve a further purpose, which is this beautiful way to kind of spark a deeper level of engagement in your daily life experience to get out of bed, like energized and excited about, you know, tackling something audacious or something that scares you a little bit. Like it, it really enervates you. Mm-hmm. And I enervates think they, or enervate, energizes. Enerv- isn't enervate? I'm using enervate correctly. I think enervate means you drained of energy. Oh, you're right. I've done that before. <laughs> I need to really okay. figure that out. Yeah, energize. It's enervate. the medium's fault. Right. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah. Sorry. Um, what I'm trying to say is that big goals can help you feel like more alive, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, you know, and Adam already realizes this, that these big goals have to be negotiated with those with whom we share responsibilities. Otherwise they can quickly devolve into selfish pursuits that end up undermining the other important aspects of, of your life including you know, our relationship with our loved ones and our ability to live up to our responsibilities and our professional obligations and expectations. And because by definition, our time and our energy is limited, it's not unlimited, all of this becomes a tricky balance. Like how do you strike the appropriate balance between those two things? And I think it begins by going beyond this discussion around goals, temporal goals, and instead getting really clear on values. And this is something that came up in the podcast with James Clear, like you should read his book, Atomic Habits, if you haven't read that, because it talks all about this. So basically what I'm saying is starting with your values, identifying which values you cherish most. And there's no right or wrong answers here. Hmm. Like maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's parenting, career, finances, health, fitness, adventure, you know, it's just getting clear on the priority list of these things and then figuring out like, how are these values being most nourished daily? And then getting granular to ask yourself if a 60K race fits into that value set or value structure or whether it comes at the peril of these other values, right? Like, does it exceedingly threaten your marriage or your relationship and then asking, well, if it does, is it worth it? Or is there a way to pursue this goal, nourish these values and keep both of them intact? So in other words, it's about asking yourself whether the goal fulfills the value. Why is this race important to you? What are you seeking to learn and experience and getting clear on like, oh, it just seems like a cool thing or it scares me like, okay, well, let's go beneath the surface of that. Like, why do you have to do a race to do that? Could you do something else? Or what specifically is it about this race that makes it so important that you would desire to pursue it even if your wife has reservations about you doing it, right? So I think that's important. Yes. Would you agree with that? And then with that clarity, it becomes about communication. Like, okay, your wife is scared. Well, what is she scared about? Like, what are those fears? Is she legitimately scared that you're gonna injure yourself? Or is that fear have more to do with you not being around as much or when you are around being too tired to, you know, basically be present for her? Like, are her fears legitimate? Are her concerns legitimate? Or 
is there something that you can talk through with her that would make her less fearful and more welcoming of you pursuing this goal? Because obviously, if you're in a healthy relationship, you want each other to be pursuing goals and you right. wanna be you know, mutual support systems for each other. So in this case, she doesn't seem to be on board with it. And you can be disgruntled and angry and resentful, or you can try to understand that and figure out a way to compromise so that you're both comfortable because you cohabitate together and you've got to be on the same page if you want your relationship to, you know, continue in a healthy way. And then with that understanding, like holding yourself accountable to that. Like if you can come to some compromise where she says, okay, you could do it, but I need to make sure that, you know, you're still available for X, Y, and Z, or that we're gonna do this, or that you're gonna show up for me in these other ways. And then making sure that not only do you do that, but you do it with a smile on your face. And perhaps you even go the extra mile to make sure that she's feeling heard and honored in that, like, and at ease with you pursuing this goal. And I think the final thing I would say is that, you know, it's hard to know just based on your question, but it seems like, or it feels like you have different risk calculuses, right? Like she seems to be a little bit more risk averse than you. You wanna pursue this thing that to me, like training for a 60K race doesn't sound that risky. I mean, maybe it's super technical and you can fall off a cliff. I don't it's, know. It's, like, uh, but, uh, it's a minimum it, max elevation, 8,500 to 11,900, oh, average elevation 10. It's, it seems like in the Leadville category, right, but there's 100K be, and 60K, okay. so it's not as long. Right. Yeah. So maybe some risk. I don't know what Late his July. background is and all yeah. of that kind of thing. Um, you wanna take a risk. She's more risk averse. There's no right or wrong in that. It's totally okay. Um, but your relationship requires honoring each other so you both feel safe, heard and respected. So does she have wiggle room? Do you have wiggle room? How can you work together to get to a place where you're both comfortable with this? Because you don't wanna like say, I'm just doing it anyway. I don't care if you're scared. That's not a good recipe for the, the sake of your relationship. But you also don't wanna just say, oh, you don't want me to do it. I'm not gonna do it. Cause you're just gonna get resentful towards her. So. You know, you got to work it out. It's not for me to say whether you should or shouldn't pursue this goal. Only, you know, only Adam knows that. But you know, that's where I would so leave it. Get granular. Figure out if the goal where the well, get where global the, first. Get and global get, with goals then and values. Granular. Then get granular. Then build a deck so that you can uh, present, so present it to the wife. Yes. <laughs> and get her to rubber stamp that thing. That's what you're saying. No. Uh, oh, no. Um, no. As someone who is raising a, a, a young person with a lovely lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and as somebody I'm who not, likes I, adventures I'm not and, unfamiliar and you with like this territory. Risk. Yeah, like this is right up your alley. <laughs> I've, been, I've, been, I've been dealing with this. So, um, but I do find that when you can communicate why it means something to you, you have a better chance of- The why is huge. The, yeah, the why is huge. You have a better chance of, of winning people over, but it also means that you have to show up when it's your time and you have to, like you, you've talked about it, you, it's in your sure. book. Mm-hmm. You know, you had like, you were taking on some of the biggest things you ever took on while having small kids. Mm-hmm. And that meant that you couldn't be tired from your no. 100K yeah, bike I'd ride. Yeah, walk in the door, like completely exhausted. Here you and go. Julie handed me a baby <laughs> and said, see ya. Right. Yeah. And you need, you need to be available for mm-hmm. that. So, you know, you, we both know this and it sounds like Adam knows it too, because he's not just like dismissing it entirely. He's, right. It seems like, you know, he wants to do this thing. He wants, to, you know, sometimes it's like. And maybe you work up to it. Maybe you compromise by doing, uh, you know, a more modest race this year and demonstrate 
your good faith, like you met that goal and you also were able to show up. So then your wife has more comfort with you tackling something else and perhaps she's less afraid. Like, does this have to happen this year? Can you work up to it a little bit more gradually? There are seasons to life and like, maybe you used to be freer and you could do these things a little bit easier, but that doesn't mean that was better. It just means you're in a different period of your life now. Mm And so you can't judge your current period based on who you used to be. You have to judge it on who you are now. And then that period will pass and you will be able to take on some more risk at times. I mean, that's just the way things go. That's how I look at it. And so I'm not trying to like get underwater, you know, five days a week because it's unrealistic. It won't happen. If I do that, I will never work. And you know, (laughs) that's not good. Mm -hmm. So like I had to figure out a way to make it work. And it's constant communication to continue to make it work. Mm -hmm. And so I would just urge constant communication and and just getting to know your goals. I have not done the deep dive of goals and values. That sounds really interesting. Um, You know, I I try to, I kind of live in more of a improvisational state. I get that. (laughs) I like that. I get that. Cool, well, let's move on. Yeah. You're very good at these, by the way. Thank you. That was good advice, Adam. Really? Mm -hmm. You think I'll make one of those reels? Yeah, I think so. We'll see. <laughs> this is your moment. Like you got to throw I down. Made one. Throw I made down one. like the dope, the just super dope monologue, and I will for sure put it up. <laughs> what if I like brought in my own like cool music and just hit <laughs> in like a boombox? It's time down for here? my reel, Rich. Are you ready? Ready for my reel? Hang on, I'm trying to find this next one. I had to go deep in the archives for this. All right, here we go. All the way to New Zealand. Anita from New Zealand. Here I reach an Adam. This is Anita calling from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Three years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I had chemo, surgery, and radiotherapy. As part of that journey, I completely changed my lifestyle. Now I eat plant-based, I exercise regularly, I don't drink, I go to bed early, and I have a spiritual practice. So far, so good. I feel better than ever before. I was single when I got cancer and for the last three years, I've been fully dedicated to myself to recover and to stay cancer free. Now I feel ready to start dating again, but I'm finding very difficult to find people who align to my new lifestyle. So my question for you is, what would you do if you were single today and you wanted to find a new partner? Will you be strict about finding someone who aligns 100% to your values or will you be more flexible? Thank you guys. I love the podcast. I can't thank you enough for all the knowledge and inspiration you share. Bye. Thank you, Anita. I'm sorry that you went through cancer, but it sounds like you've come out the other side healthy and that's great, of course. Um, It also sounds like maybe you're from Argentina and not New Zealand. Oh, really? It's not a New Zealand accent. No, but uh, she lives in New Zealand. Yes, she does. Why Argentina? Oh, I don't know. It's a twang of Latin in there yeah, that reminded yeah. me of a, a friend from that part of the world and sounded familiar. Who was, knows? Was your friend named Che Guevara? <laughs> he was not. <laughs> Are you trying to lure me back into the culture war, Adam? <laughs> the OG culture warrior? I am resisting. I will not be a profiteer. Um, Anita. So thank you for the question. Uh, I'm probably not the best person to ask about dating because I've been with my wife for 22 years. Um, but I will say this, I think it's, it's healthy and better to spend less time focusing on 
the qualities of the person you're looking for, like identifying in your mind, like this person that I'm looking for has to have these things in order for me to be interested. Like to the extent that you can kind of let go of that and instead focus more on continuing to become the person you aspire to be. I feel like that's a better use of your your energy time and, and also a more powerful lever and magnet towards attracting that person that you're looking for into your life that you might not really even be able to define and identify. Mm. Because being the most developed, authentic and self-actualized that you possibly can be is the most attractive that you can be, right? The more that you can develop those capacities, the more confident you are, the more steady you are in standing in your own two feet, right? Tall and just owning your space. And that's something that, you know, radiates when you walk into a room, you always know like, oh, that person knows who they are. Like Mm. there's something innately very attractive about that Um, because we all wanna be with somebody who knows who they are and owns their space. (laughs) Yes, if they don't know who they are, that means they have amnesia and you should not date them. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know (laughs) what I'm saying. I'm just kidding, yes. Um, Yeah, it's like this attractor, like you put, it's a force field or a tractor beam that, that ends up attracting the quality of person that you seek to have in your life. I've said this before, but it's like, you know, imagining yourself as a lighthouse, like you're, you're putting this signal out into the world for those that, you know, and those that resonate with it will become attracted to you. Like mm. water rises to its own level. So level up to attract the like-minded person. Um, and, and remembering, you know, this idea that like a partner doesn't and will never complete you. Like that's not their job. Your job is to complete yourself. So it's not looking for that externality to be the missing piece in who you are, like do that on your own time with yourself. And when you solve that puzzle, then you're ready to be in the world and attract the person that you desire into your life. Um, and on the, on the subject of like flexibility and trying to identify people who, who share your values, I think it's important that intimate partners share core values. The former question was kind of all about that, like finding shared core values. But beyond that, I think it's important to not be too rigorous or demanding when it comes to how that person embodies or expresses those values. In other words, like let go of rigorously attempting to match with someone who aligns 100% with everything you're interested in. Like if you look at my wife and I, we're incredibly different people. We align on values, but we can also be like oil and water, like our marriage is not without friction, Mm. but there's something about that alchemy that's been this incredible growth experience for both of us. Like her differences have pushed me to grow in ways that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. And hopefully I can say the same for her. And that alchemical kind of concoction has been, you know, a really beautiful aspect of our marriage. It's, It's hard at times, it makes it really hard, but, Um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And had I been in a position of just trying to find the person who met my criteria and they need to be this person who does these things, I would have missed the opportunity and missed the gift, right? Because we're all constantly growing and evolving all the time. Mm -hmm. So if you're like, my partner needs to eat exactly the way that I do and they need to, you know, do the da 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 da, like 
you're just setting yourself up for frustration. So maybe expand the aperture a little bit. And also you're dating, you're not getting married, like go out and date people, like have fun. If it's not, if it's like, it's not a fit, then it's not a fit. Like right. no loss, you had an experience meeting somebody. It's not a failure, it's just another experience. 100%, I'd say be flexible. They do not have to meet 100% of your criteria. Um, have fun, feel it out, explore the mystery. It's like, it's like good creative projects. You never know where you're gonna land mm -hmm. and your life is like that, right? Even people who you, like you're saying know who they are actually don't yeah. really, to be yeah, honest yeah, with yeah. you. Nobody knows Fair exactly point. who they are or who they're gonna become. And so you don't even know where you're gonna be in 10 years. I'm not saying you're not gonna have certain values that stick with you and are important to you. What I'm saying is you don't know how that will evolve and evolve you. And so, you, you know, just because you meet someone, even if you're as close to 100% now, that doesn't mean that's gonna be the case in 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's about, it, it, does the communication overlap? Can you grow together and allow people to grow a little bit differently? Because hopefully that will happen. And, and that's going to take being at ease in the mystery and doing a creative project at ease in the mystery. You've survived cancer. You had to figure out how to stay at ease in the, in the hardest mystery of all. This is dating. And it could be hard because, you know, when you're, when I, 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 we don't know, how, you know, this person's life or Anita, where, you know, how, has she been married before? We don't know anything about it, but um, we know that as a single person, I know what it's like post-divorce. It is lonely sometimes. Mm -hmm. So the mystery is not always enjoyable, but you do have to find a way to be at ease in it. Cause it, like it, that ease is going to be critical in enjoying your life, let alone meeting a partner. So, um, you know, how can you find ease in the mystery? Mm. Adam Skolnick coming through with his reel. Yeah. Oh shit, I reel. forgot to hit the music. <laughs> You're good at that, Dad. Um, fantastic, I think that's a good place to wind it down for today. All right. Beautifully put, my friend. Always good to share space with you. Thanks for having it was me. It's good, I feel like we got like, I feel we're connected. We're pulled back in? Yeah, you feel are all right? We, yeah, are we, going, are we doing this again Do you think anyone's or? still listening? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's liberating, right? <laughs> Say whatever the fuck you want. That's why I'm okay. at my best at the end. The stakes are low. <laughs> stakes are low. Right. This doesn't matter. It's all, think, a, it's all a stage. A, right. a, a, what's he call it? A rehearsal stage? A, uh, the rehearsal. The rehearsal space. Have you been watching Nathan No, Fielder's that's on my rehearsal? list. It's on my list. Uh, we'll talk about it next time. Okay. I just finished it last night. All right. It's unbelievable. I'm too busy watching off-label uh, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers, like <laughs> failed docs and, and Instagram. You gotta I mean, get down with Nathan Fielder. Bourdain. The rehearsal is really quite something. Something. Okay. Yeah. I'm in. So next time. I'm in. All right, buddy. Yeah. Um, cool. I think we're back in two weeks. If we're not, give or take, but I'm pretty sure we are. Cool. See everybody back here again soon. Thanks for taking this ride with us. You can follow Adam at Adam Skolnick. I'm at Rich Roll everywhere except on TikTok. I think it's I am Rich Roll. Again, we need your questions. Leave yes. us a message 424 235 4626. Uh, if you wanna check the show notes for the links to everything that we've discussed, visit the episode page for this episode, episode 700. Congratulations. At richroll.com. And uh, hey, you know what? Why don't you subscribe to our YouTube channel yeah. and maybe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify while you're at it, just go full bore. Like you're at the buffet at a Las Vegas casino and you're just going all in. Yeah, and then That's subscribe to the newsletter. <laughs> <laughs>
There you go. And if not, we'll subscribe you. Like to, and, and then you can unsubscribe and then subscribe yeah. again and yeah. keep unsubscribing because it is very gratifying to unsubscribe to newsletters. It's so so I'm giving you that opportunity. It's so good. It's right. so good. <laughs> okay. I love it. Um, appreciate everybody who helps uh, put on the show. Adam and I do not do this alone. Jason Camiolo, audio engineering production, show notes, interstitial music, and more. Blake Curtis and Dan Drake for all the video work. Daniel Solis for graphics. AJ Akpodiete for TikToks and more. Uh, Davey Greenberg and Grayson Wilder, although Grayson moved, he's not with us as much anymore. Where'd he move? We've got, uh, he he moved to Tennessee. Oh. And now we have Giselle Peters, who's been fantastic. Thank you, Giselle for portraits. Although we got Dan today because neither, nobody could come. So today's photos. Dan Drake. On the socials by Dan Drake, Georgia Whaley for copywriting, DK for advertiser relationships. That's the engine behind all of this. And uh, theme music is always by my boys, Tyler and Trapper and uh, my nephew, Hari. Thanks guys for that theme song that just refuses to go away 10 years later. No matter how much uh, I wish to move on and transcend it and try something new, the fans have spoken. So anyway, thanks for the love you guys. See you back here in a couple of days with another awesome episode. And until then, take us out, Adam. Peace, plants. Adios. Adios. Yeah.